Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Horrifying. Terrifying. Yeah, right. That was the intense scene in Times Square. Good morning, everyone. I'm Don Lemon. You can see Poppy is here. Caitlin is off. Lucky Caitlin. She's on assignment. Since she's off, she's on assignment. So it's so good to see you. Did you have a good New Year's? I wore my sparkles for you. You look great. Because you were so I good. Missed in, you. I missed you. Can I come next time? Yeah. You were so good and sparkly in New Orleans with your three children. Yeah, it was with my three children. It was great to be with family. Of course, you know, that's everything over the holiday, as you know, Poppy. We have to talk about what yes. happened over the New Year's. There was a New Year's Eve attack on police near Times Square just hours before midnight, who investigators now have in custody, and what we are just learning about the suspect's diary. Plus, once in a century, floor fight looms as Kevin McCarthy's speaker bid faces its final hurdle. But will his big concessions be enough to win over the, quote, never Kevin crew? She'll see the clock is ticking. And the Ph.D. student in criminal justice suspected of killing four college students could be headed back to Idaho soon while he is planning to waive an extradition hearing straight ahead. But we've got to start with this. There are some new details coming in this morning on the New Year's Eve machete attack near Times Square. We have learned that the 19-year-old suspect who injured three police officers carried a handwritten diary in which he wrote of his desire to join the Taliban in Afghanistan and die as a mortar. Now, law enforcement searched the attacker's home in Maine on Sunday. He remains in custody in New York, but has not been formally charged. So joining us now from Times Square is CNN's Gloria Pasmino. Gloria, good morning to you. This is a frightening frightening story. What are investigators looking for, looking into at this hour? That's right, Don. Good morning. We are learning more about that suspect, Trevor Bickford, as you said, from Maine, who law enforcement sources tell us traveled here to New York City last week and then approached the area near Times Square on a Saturday on New Year's Eve and tried to get into this area where I'm standing right now, which was highly, highly secured because of the New Year's Eve celebration. He approached one of the security checkpoints and he approached a police officer and tried to attack him with a machete. He then tried to strike another officer. And that's when a third officer that was also on the scene fired a shot from his service weapon and injured this suspect, Trevor Bigford, in his shoulder. 
Now, we are also learning, according to law enforcement sources, that Trevor Bickford was carrying a diary that uh, where he had handwritten notes about wanting to join the Taliban in Afghanistan, and he expressed a desire to die as a martyr. Law enforcement sources also telling us that they are uh, trying to figure out both at the U.S. Southern District uh, here in New York whether he will be charged federally or uh, state law. The Manhattan District Attorney also looking into this. Don? Gloria, do we know anything about the suspect's condition? I mean, the officer's condition, I should say. The suspect... The suspect is recovering in the hospital, but Don, those three officers also recovering. One of them had just graduated from the academy last week. Times Square was one of his first assignments. He is in good spirits. We heard about that officer from Mayor Eric Adams uh, yesterday, early morning, who visited with those three officers after they were injured in that attack. They are all uh, expected to make a recovery. It is horrifying. Gloria, thank you very much. We appreciate that. And I want to bring in now CNN law enforcement analyst Jonathan Wackrow. Good morning to you. It's just, it's, I mean, it's crazy. Crazy. This is a brazen attack. It's a brazen attack against the NYPD, mm-hmm. a brazen attack against the city. And right now the question is why? What was the motive here of this 19-year-old suspect who's now in custody? What was he doing? What was his intent? The fact that they have a diary and that what we know of it uh, says that he had this desire to join the Taliban. Of course, I guess it depends how extensive his writings are within that diary, but that seems like that'll help a lot in terms of trying to get to a motive. Well, it's going to start painting that picture, right? So investigators right now are starting to go through every aspect of this individual's life, to include the diary, but also all of the digital trace elements of his life, social media, um, interactions with people online, really seeking to, to understand, was this individual self-radicalized mm. or were they uh, directed or encouraged by an individual or a group? Really trying to make that nexus back to uh, a foreign terror group, right? Just saying, I want to be part of the Taliban isn't enough. You have to say, was this act really tied to the furtherance of an ideology to really get that terrorism shot. So they're going through his home in Maine to look for all of that, right? They're probably going They're going through, through every aspect of his life. So we, we do know that the FBI went, uh, it has been searching the home, but everywhere else. You have to think, this individual traveled down to New York on Thursday. Thursday to Saturday, what happened? Who, you know, who did he meet with? Who did he interact with? Again, was there somebody that was uh, directing this act, really shepherding him to engage in this, this, this violent act against uh, the NYPD on New Year's Eve? Again, think about the iconic status of New Year's Eve, this event as a whole. We've all been there covering it, it, it exactly. in Times Square. Yeah. Um, and again, so this is uh, really looking at you know, what was that motivation? Where did it come from? Why that spot? Too, right? You know, walking around New York City with a machete, you could have launched an attack anywhere. Why there? Why these officers? Why that moment in time? A remarkable response from the officers. Yeah, absolutely. Wishing them well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Very much, Jonathan. Uh, new this morning, a suspect is in custody after a New Year's Eve mass shooting. This happened in Mobile, Alabama. <laughs> Police say a 24-year-old man is dead. Nine others, ranging in age from 17 to 57, were injured, uh, some severely injured. Thousands of people were waiting to ring in the new year in the downtown area there in Mobile when a gunman started shooting. About 45 minutes before midnight, police say the male suspect is getting treatment. 
and will be transferred to the jail and charged with those murder counts. Yeah, lots of gun violence and just violence in general was starting you off with this morning. Sorry about that, but that is the news. And this morning, the House Speaker, Kevin, well, the person who wants to be Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, uh, the Republican leader, still does not know if he has enough votes to secure his bid to become the next Speaker. Uh, that's even after making concessions last night to some of the uh, right's most hardline demands. Sitting Lauren Fox live on Capitol Hill with more to explain it all. Hopefully you can explain it because <laughs> there's a lot going on. Good morning to you, Lauren. Just one day until the big vote. Will McCarthy, is he going to have these votes? Well, that's the key question, Don, and I don't think anyone here has the answer to it. McCarthy hoping that he has the votes, but right now it doesn't look like he has secured them. This comes after a week of intense lobbying between Christmas and New Year's, constant phone calls with allies and detractors, seeing what he could give conservatives to try and win them over. Last night, like you said, he made a clear concession to conservatives on a private conference call, telling them that he would be willing to include in the rules package a lower threshold of what it would take to call for a vote to oust the speaker from half the conference to just five Five single members. That is something that moderates are really opposed to, but something that they could potentially rally around if it delivered McCarthy the votes he needed. But on that same call, Matt Gates, a key detractor, one of the five members who said he is opposed to McCarthy, said he's still a no. That surprised a lot of moderates and really led to a lot of frustration on this call as lawmakers are hoping, at least his allies, that McCarthy can be the next speaker. But there's really a lot of uncertainty right now whether that is going to be able to come true tomorrow on the floor. All right, Lauren. So what if he doesn't? What if he doesn't get those votes? Then what? We, we're talking, Don, about a once-in-a-century floor fight where you have multiple rounds of voting, multiple ballots on the House floor. Normally, this is a formality up here, but this could be a major, major distraction. And a lot of moderates that I talked to last week said they are ready for a fight. They are going to be for Kevin McCarthy on the first ballot, and they are going to be for Kevin McCarthy on the thousandth ballot. But there's a real political cost to a floor fight because what do voters back home start to think about the Republican majority if they are just entrenched in this massive fight on the floor for days or weeks. Don. Right. Thank you. I, Lauren, appreciate it. I mean, I kinda, this shows what is to come with the 118th Congress where they still don't know oh, at man. this point. Oh, yeah. man. They're starting That's us ahead. off. <laughs> there you go. Uh, all right. Well, we have to turn to this because the suspect charged with murdering four University of Idaho students is planning to waive his extradition hearing. Brian Koberger faces four counts of first-degree murder in the Moscow-Idaho killings. His attorney says that his client is, quote, shocked after being accused of killing Ethan Chapin, Zania Godela, Madison Mogan, and Kaylee Conclavis. They were all stabbed to death. We have been following this, as you know, for two months now. They were all stabbed to death in their home on November the 13th. Gene Casares is live for us in Pennsylvania that is outside of the jail. Gene, what do you know? Good morning, Puppy. We're here in northeastern Pennsylvania. This is the Monroe County Correctional Facility. It is in uh, Monroe County, and it is a very rural area. And Brian Koberger is right here. His attorney tells me he is in isolation. He is waiting for his next court hearing, which is tomorrow. It is that extradition proceeding to get him back to Idaho. The attorney also confirms with me that he talked with his client at length, describing to him the pros and the cons. And he has made the decision, Brian Koberger made the decision that he will waive extradition to go back to Idaho. Now, on Friday morning, in the early morning hours, he was arrested right here 
in northeastern Pennsylvania, in old Brightsville, Pennsylvania, very small town. I mean, it's not far from here. Why here? Authorities say this is his home. This is where he was from. And CNN has learned that Brian Koberger's father flew to Washington and actually drove with him home for the holidays. His attorney tells me that they arrived about December 17th. Now, we do know, and a source is telling CNN, that the FBI was surveilling him right here in northeastern Pennsylvania for four days before the arrest. At the very same time, law enforcement prosecutors were getting their evidence together to present to a judge for that arrest warrant affidavit. And we do understand, a source tells CNN, it's based on DNA and it's also based on that white car, which is now in Pennsylvania and authorities have. With everything going on, I asked his attorney, does he realize what is happening right now and the seriousness of this? Here's what he said. He's doing okay. Uh, he's shocked a little bit. Um, obviously, he's calm right now. Uh, you know, we don't really know much about the case. Now, your client is highly educated, very intelligent. He has to appreciate the seriousness of what is happening right now. Oh, absolutely. He, he is very intelligent. Uh, in my hour conversation with him, that comes off. Uh, I can tell that. Uh, and he understands where we are right now. And we have received a statement from the family that says they appreciate also the seriousness of this. They are cooperating with law enforcement and they are very sad for the families involved and they respect and ask for their privacy. Poppy. Thank you very much for that reporting. And new this morning, actor Jeremy Renner is hospitalized in critical but stable condition after a snowplow accident near Reno, Nevada. That's what his spokesman told our affiliate KBC. Renner was air, air, airlifted, I should say, to a local hospital, according to the sheriff's office. They say that he was the only one involved in this incident. Uh, no further details on what caused that accident, which is now under investigation. There's also this new study. We wish him very well, obviously. This is very sad there. But listen, there's this new study uh, that says keeping hydrated, as we are with our 18 cups of water and coffee here, <laughs> could be a key to the lower risk of death, which is interesting. What you need to know next, we'll tell you. Also, thousands of people preparing to pay their respects to the late Pope Benedict. The 16th as he lies in state today at the Vatican. The plans this week for saying goodbye ahead. Can you not tell that I don't want any water? Enough with the nagging and the water. Why do I need yeah. to ask what that's from? What is that from? I don't know. Do we know what oh, that's from? Oh, the guilt trip my brilliant young producer tells me. It's, that's Tim with me in the water. I'm old. I'm like, the beer count. It's all, I mean, <laughs> liquid, right? I mean, it says stay hydrated. Specifically water, we'll ask Elizabeth Cohen. But let us explain what's happening to you. New this morning, staying hydrated is important for your body in so many ways. But now a new study suggests it could truly be a lifesaver. That is according to a new study from the National Institutes of Health. Drinking water can significantly lower your risk of developing chronic diseases, uh, prematurely aging your body, or even dying early. Wow. That is Something. pretty good, right? Elizabeth Cohen is here, our senior medical correspondent. So, Elizabeth... What does this new study find? Is it just water or is it hydrating in general? 
It's hydrating in general. Don, what they did was so interesting. They looked at more than 11,000 people. So this is a huge group of people. And they looked at their, at their blood to see who was better hydrated and who was worse hydrated. And you really can get a very good idea from looking at people's blood who was better and who was worse hydrated. And they followed them for decades. And here is what they found. What they found is that folks who were getting, who were on the lower end of hydration, who were not as well hydrated, they had a 21% increased risk of premature death and a 64% increased risk of heart failure, diabetes, dementia, and all sorts of other things. I mean, it was really a very, very clear relationship. So really, this is stuff we already know. Hydration is good for you, so stay hydrated. Hmm. Why were you asking if it's just water? Because I mean, because I think it can be... Elizabeth, I've known you for a long time. We've been doing these studies, and I remember doing a study with you not so long ago, correct me if I'm wrong, where we talked about whether it's hydrating, is it just water? There was this whole thing about drink this much water, drink this. And it said it wasn't just water. As long as you were getting liquid, which in most cases is water, right? You could be tea, it could be some ways coffee, it could be... I thought he was asking about beer. Maybe beer. (laughs) But as long as you're hydrating. It does not have to it does not have to be water. Now, here's the here's the issue, though. If you're going to drink a ton of juice, you're getting a whole lot of sugar. sugar. If yeah. you drink a ton of soda, you're getting a lot of sugar. If you're right. g- drinking a ton of beer, you're going to be drunk all the time. So there are issues with other th- kinds of things to drink. But you do- it doesn't have to be water. You can get hydrated in other ways. Also, there are a lot of foods that have high water content. So it does not have to be water. But certainly watch yourself if you're drinking a lot of sugary things or a lot of alcohol. Yeah, I mean, listen, all seriousness... <laughs> I mean, it is good. Good, clean water is probably the best way to do it, correct? I know we're joking around, but that is the best way to do it. And this is a serious study because if you can prevent death and aging and the yeah. onset of different of, of certain diseases. Yes. Yeah, I fill my kids' water bottles like all day, every day, and just leave them around the house so that they're constantly picking them up. Elizabeth, thank you very much. Thanks, Elizabeth. Good to see you. Happy New Year to you. Thank you. She said Happy New Year. She was thinking Happy New Year. Yeah, she was. The former Brazilian President Bolsonaro fleeing his successor's inauguration, why he is in Florida, plus this. Gretchen Whitmer sure is good at taking business hostage and holding it for ransom. What went through your mind when she said that? Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer newly sworn into a second term. She is speaking out. Her reaction also to the sentences for those men who plotted to kidnap her. Caitlin sat down with her. You'll see it ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back, everyone, to CNN This Morning. Here's what's coming up. Fleeing to Florida, why former President Jair Bolsonaro left Brazil and is now taking refuge in Orlando. Plus, Supreme Court Chief Justice Roberts says that uh, justices shouldn't live in fear. What he says to the court system. And people keep taking the wrong to go orders. That's purpose, we're told. Why is this happening and the consequences straight ahead? Well, tens of thousands of donors are expected to pay their respects uh, to the late Pope Benedict in Vatican City today to honor his life and his legacy. He passed away on New Year's Eve at the age of 95. His body is currently lying in state at St. Peter's Basilica. His funeral is set for Thursday. Fred Plekton is live for CNN this morning in Vatican City. Fred, good, good morning to you. What's so unique about this, this has never happened in six centuries that a former pope has mm-hmm. died. They've always been Pope. 
when they pass. So this is all new. Yeah, exactly, because they, they, they usually serve until the end of their lifetime. First of all, Happy New Year to you, to Don, and to the entire crew. And you're absolutely right. It's, an, it's quite a remarkable scene here uh, at, uh, at St. Peter's Square, where you do already have thousands of people who are pouring in here to pay their final respects uh, to Pope Benedict XVI. I can get out of your way a little bit. It's a bit crowded here. There's a lot of people who are coming here from the immediate area, from Rome. There's a lot of people who are affiliated from the church. We have also seen some people who are coming in from Germany, Pope Benedict XVI, was of course German, but also very much attached to his homeland in Germany, Bavaria, you know, the area around Munich, and really someone who celebrated that area. It was interesting, there was a final letter from Pope Benedict that came out where he praised the area from Germany that he was from. But as you can see, this is a big event here in uh, for the Catholic Church, for Rome, uh, for the entire Catholic community in the world, really, and, and pretty much something that hasn't happened in hundreds of years, that when the funeral for Pope Benedict is going to happen, the acting pope is going to preside over the funeral of his predecessor. Certainly a remarkable event, but also, of course, right now, this area just celebrating the life and legacy of Pope Benedict, who, you know, he was only pope for about a little over seven years, but he was very influential here in the Catholic Church for decades, really, since the early 80s, Poppy. I know that he will uh, lie in state until the funeral Thursday. What do we know about the funeral? Mm -hmm. And I wonder if major heads of state are attending? Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So we're not clear whether major heads of state are going to be attending. We do know that this morning already the Italian prime minister and the Italian president have already been here and have visited Pope Benedict's body here in St. Peter's Cathedral. One of the things that we do know, however, uh, is that Pope Benedict wanted a smaller funeral than, for instance, his predecessor. He didn't want a large funeral. And I was here uh, when the funeral for John Paul II happened, and also when Pope Benedict became a pope in 2005. And that was a gigantic event. There were millions of people who came here to Rome, and of course, lots of lots of heads of states and heads of government. Pope Benedict himself wanted a smaller, more humble ceremony. That is certainly going to happen, but it's also going to be provided, uh, presided over, as we said, by Pope Francis himself, Poppy. That will be remarkable in and of itself to see, certainly making history there. Fred Plekton live in Vatican City. Thank you. And this morning, Brazil's former president is here in the U.S. Jair Bolsonaro fled to Florida just days before his successor took office. Bolsonaro skipped Sunday's inauguration of the country's new president, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, after refusing to concede the election to him. So joining us now with more from Brazil is CNN's Julia Vargas-Jones. Good morning to you, uh, Julia. Bolsonaro still never actually conceded the election. He was actually seen in Florida over the last few days. How do you see this playing out over the next few days? He never did concede on or congratulate his opponent. In fact, he went in the other direction, challenging election results. And his supporters took to the streets, uh, demanding a military intervention. Now, he didn't give a reason for his departure, his abrupt departure to Florida on Friday. We know that he meant to sk skip the inauguration, but he is being investigated in Brazil for a, a, a series of things. One of them is the fact that the mishandling of the COVID-19 pandemic, he's being investigated by Brazil's Supreme Court. And also there are several allegations of corruption that touch the president and his family. So a very uncertain future for the former president if he will stay abroad or return to Brazil to potentially face those charges. So the question is for you, people want to know, I want to know, why did he choose Florida? 
unclear, Don. I, I couldn't tell you. We know that he has an appreciation for former President Donald Trump. There was there were rumors in Brazilian media that he perhaps uh, wanted to go to Mar-a-Lago. That was never confirmed. He is staying in the house of a former MMA fighter. That's what we do know. Uh, unclear why Florida. It's also a place that has a lot of Brazilians. Orlando, huge Brazilian community. He was very well received there uh, when he arrived on Friday evening to cheers and applause. You can see why he's having a good time. He has now become a Florida man. Thank you very much, Julia Vargas Jones. Appreciate it. Well, also this morning, Brazil begins saying a formal goodbye to the king, the global icon Pele, who put Brazilian soccer on the map. In the 60s and the 70s overnight, his coffin was transferred from the hospital where he died to the stadium of his longtime team, Santos, where his wake begins at 8 a.m. Eastern time today. Fans from all over are expected to come pay their respects in that stadium that has the capacity to hold, to hold 16,000 people. In the stands, there are flags displaying the famous number 10 on his jersey and another with the message, long live the king. Listen, even though we, he had been ill, it's still, I mean, Pele, he's a legend, he's a an legend. icon. It was shocking and yeah. sad. So the Chief Justice, John Roberts, expressing his concern for judges' physical safety after one of the Supreme Court's most tumultuous terms ever. Plus this. Some people are not happy, <clears throat> like my BFF to my left, <laughs> about Rolling Stone's list of the 200 greatest singers of all time, the powerhouse vocalist who got left out. Who are you most oh my, annoyed okay, about? Okay, so this list, Rolling Stone, we got to talk. We got to talk. I, we got a bone to pick with Rolling Stone. <laughs> A judicial system cannot and should not live in fear. That is a quote from the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts, calling for the safety of judges and justices in his annual year-end report. And this comes as threats against government officials have intensified after the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. CNN senior Supreme Court analyst Joan Biskupik joins us now. It also follows Joan, uh, the person with a gun outside of Justice Kavanaugh's home just a few months ago. What do you make of the direction and the focus of this for Roberts? I remember a few years it was about making the case that justices are not political. Remember, we're not a Trump court. We're not an Obama court. Yeah. What do you make about of this focus? Well, morning, Poppy and Don. It's a it's a singular opportunity for Chief Justice Roberts to speak to the nation. You know, everybody pays attention to what he says in these year-end reports. And he actually made this year's a, a relatively brief. And even when he talked about safety, it was it was not in a in a, a big way. It was just a couple paragraphs toward the end after uh, detailing threats to uh, uh, a judge back in the 50s during the era of school desegregation cases. So in some ways, he sidestepped the things that people were most thinking about relative to this Supreme Court. The major leak uh, of the decision to reverse Roe v. Wade back in May, when the chief said that he was going to launch uh, an investigation of this betrayal of the Supreme Court, didn't talk at all about that, 
didn't talk at all about many of the ethical concerns that have come up uh, in uh, on multiple fronts. Uh, remember, the Supreme Court doesn't have any kind of formal ethics policy. So he avoided those things, but he did address the safety issue, mm -hmm. which is part of the atmosphere right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh and Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer uh, are officials who were both targeted this year. So I want you to take a listen. This is what Whitmer had to say uh, to our Caitlin Collins. Watch this. And they weren't planning to ransom me. They weren't going to keep me. They were planning to assassinate me. And the plot has been covered as a kidnapping plot. There was one person who showed up on, you know, a Supreme Court Justice's lawn and turned himself in. And it was covered as an assassination attempt. And so I think that when you look at the facts of both of those and you see how differently they're covered, I do, you know, have concern about the language that we use, especially when women are the target as opposed to men. Does she have a point, Joan? You know, it's interesting she raises it. Now, I'll tie it back to um, judicial security in one way. Uh, there was a, a law that Congress passed uh, just in the recent weeks as the session ended that uh, would shield the private information of uh, federal judges and members of the Supreme Court. And, and it, it arose originally from uh, a very serious threat against a female judge in New Jersey whose son was murdered when right. he answered the door. And that was directed toward her. I, I think that uh, there's no way any of us should diminish what happened to Governor Whitmer, but I also don't want to minimize threats against others when you think of Nancy Pelosi and her husband and you think of Dr. Fauci. So this is a, a serious concern across the board. Hers obviously was uh, really serious. But again, to go back to the chief justice's report, it was important what he raised, but it was also a missed opportunity to address other things that are so important in the public's eye right now regarding the Supreme Court. Joan Biskupic, thank you so much. Thanks. Appreciate it. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year. So there's a growing trend of customers taking food orders that just aren't theirs, and they're doing it on purpose. What restaurants and fast food chains are doing about it? Straight ahead, plus. Did you, wait, Mom, Dad, did you, did you hear this? Michael B. Jordan dead at 35? Uh-uh, 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 uh-uh. So this is a trend, but a disturbing one that's going viral on TikTok. Kids pranking their parents, announcing the fake deaths of some of the most beloved public figures. Why one celebrity says it went way too far. Dude, I've, I saw this and I did not think it was funny. It's not. It's not funny. You were just listening to three of the top voices from Rolling Stone's new list of 200 best singers of all time. Topping the list, the late, great Aretha Franklin, the late, great Whitney Houston, uh, Sam Cooke, Billie Holiday, Mariah Carey. Not on the list anywhere, Celine Dion. What? The magazine says it ranked the greatest singers, not necessarily the greatest voices, uh, by originality, influence, depth of their catalog, mm. and breadth of their musical legacy. Of course... There's plenty of room for debate. So joining us now, C.J. Farley. He's a former music critic for Time Magazine. Moises Mendez, a culture reporter for Time. Hello to both of you. Okay. Hey, thanks for having us. I feel us. like we're going to have a debate. What do you think? Let's do this. Judging by the commercial I, break we just had. Okay, so I think here's what I think. I will <laughs> let you guys get in. 
I think the whole thing about voices versus whatever, I think that's a cop-out. Because <laughs> you can say that people are great performers, uh, uh-huh. but if you say someone is a great singer and a great voice, to me, it is the same thing. If you can sing well, some people just can naturally sing. But there's a difference between being a great singer, a great voice, and a great performer. We will say, who I love, Madonna, great performer, right? Janet Jackson, great performer. Do they have the strongest voices? No, but they're great entertainers. Same thing with a share, or you can go on and on and on. Great entertainers, legends, you cannot. But can they sing like a Whitney Houston or a Luther Vandross or a Mahalia Jackson who can just open their mouths and music comes out with just by going, ah, no. And I think a lot of those people are left off the list. And you should bet Rolling Stone has great cultural influence. And when they think about this, they should take it more seriously and not sort of parse it and say this is voices versus singing, because I think that's a cop out. All right. Discuss. Okay, well, I, I, can, think that, <laughs> I can think that performing and, and singing, they're intertwined. I'm mean, someone like Bob Dylan, who some people might say doesn't have a great voice, but yet the way, the way he delivers his yeah. lyrics, the way he, he delivers his emotion, he's earned his place on this list. Yeah. Yes, this list has a lot of people that are missing. Tracy Chapman should be on this list. Right. Lucinda Williams from Country should be on this list. I think Julian Casablancas Celine from The Strokes Dion. should be on this list. Yeah, a lot of people should be on this list. But I think overall it's a great list to have. Because I read last year in Billboard that Drake, who's a great rapper, outsells all the catalog artists between, uh, before 1980. So anyone's recorded music together, all together, Drake outsells all of them. That's crazy. So people need to know the history of music. They need to know the, the history of these vocalists. But what does Just that mean so that Drake... Drake sample it. What does that mean that Drake outsells them? Because there's a difference between you, you, you can be a great rapper and not a great singer. No, but, he, but, but he, that's he, a different he, category. He, he, he outsells them all together. So I think people don't know the history of music. They don't buy catalog music before 1980. This list features a lot of people who recorded before 1980, people um, like Robert Johnson. So it's great to see them out there and being part of this debate, be part of the discussion, because people need to know about the history of music, the history of vocalists, so that maybe they can sample them and say, oh, maybe this is better than stuff I'm listening to now. So I love this list. I love we're having this debate, and I love talking about the history of music, because it's important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I definitely <laughs> think that the list is not the worst thing ever but i think that like when we're thinking of artists now versus you know in 15 20 years it's hard to say that they are going to be you know the same constant artists are constantly growing and changing and their places are going to move up and down this list i don't think that the people are mad that certain people are on this list i think a lot of people are upset that there's a lot that are left out we talk about who's left out i think celine dion dion warwick who you just interviewed tony bennett that's yeah, Tony Bennett, great musician. Morissette. He should mm-hmm. be on there. Last Marset's not on yeah. there. Um, there again, Lucinda Williams is not on there. Shakira is not on there. You're talking about one of on the there. greatest singers of all times. So when you talk about when they, um, the way they deliver, the emotion in their voices, and just sheer talent. Judy Garland is one of the best singers ever. Where is she? Kelly, has, has, has Rolling Stone ever heard Kelly Clarkson sing? They have her at 194. Are you kidding me? They left yeah. out Sarah Vaughn, too. Sarah, Sarah Vaughn! Vaughn yeah. yeah. It's weird not to have Sarah Vaughn on a list like this. It's mm-hmm. weird not to have Darius Rucker on there. I know right. this list tends towards the cool people that critics sort of name check. Darius Rucker uh-huh. has never been someone that critics have loved, but he has a great voice. Yeah. He has a lot of country music awards. I think he should be on this list. Definitely someone like Cher. She's like... Definitely um, just sort of uh, change the way that people use autotune as an artistic choice and not just to uh, 
correct vocals and stuff like that. But I think someone like Haley Williams Paramore, mm -hmm. she's an incredible vocalist. Um, we have, uh, ah, sorry, I'm blanking. Miley Cyrus, she's incredible. She was just at NBC doing uh, duets with Dolly Parton and Fletcher. There was um, Brindy Howard from Alabama Shakes, an incredible, incredible vocalist. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, that's all I could think and, of. And not to mention, um, Harry Belafonte is down on the list, someone who I think is a great vocalist. I, I mean, ask your grandparents about him. He's fantastic. Yeah. You know, um, uh, he should be on this list, and he's not. Uh, Paul Robeson, one of the great voices of yeah. the early part of the 20th century, not on this list. So there are a lot of missing things, but just the fact we're, we're able to bring up these voices in this discussion, I think, shows the list is a good idea. It's good to talk about it, even if the list is missing some key people. How did, like, I mean, honestly, let's just, how did Kelly Clarkson is ranked lower than Taylor Swift? I love Taylor Swift. I can Swift. maybe give some uh, insight. It's not fantastic. Yeah. It don't, don't mess with Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift. No, I love Taylor Swift. <laughs> I'm going to divert us from the... I'm talking about singing. <laughs> I'm talking about voices. I think mm -hmm. she, she has a, she has a, a voice fantastic, that but... I think communicates the ideas and the emotions right. that she's mm -hmm. singing about. She's improved over time. Yeah. She's she one of the smartest it. people I've, I've ever it. interviewed. And she's someone who's That's all well and good, but that has all that has to do with, the, with singing and voices. Like, I mean, listen, like Elvis. I, I mean, should, Can we, you compare Elvis to a Luther Vandross? It's like, it's not... Luther should be higher. Well, Luther should be higher. Luther, yeah. Luther's too low on this list. Luther should be higher. They said, this is not just about voice. Originality, influence, depth mm -hmm. of catalog, breadth. Mm -hmm. I want you to get in with the final thought on some insight into how they did this list. Yeah, so that I've is done Celine two Dion, of them. by the way, and yes. who's yeah. not on the list. Exactly. I've done two lists at Rolling Stone. I did the 70 best Beyonce and 100 best reggaeton songs yeah. of all time. And basically what we do is we send in a ballot. And based on that ballot, the enter the people who are entered kind of move up and down the list based on how many are but voted who votes? on. Like anyone? There's, um, freelancers, there are staff writers, there are people that they invite from the industry, okay. say like, you know, just experts, critics, anyone that's smart enough to write for this. And then it's sort of a little bit of a mixture of the person who's creating the list and the, the number of times people are voting for a certain mm -hmm. thing. So then up and down, it goes up and down the list. And then at the end, we kind of look at the list and we kind of have a discussion of, you know, this should be higher, this should be lower. But I've never done a staff list because I'm not on staff. And, you know, from there, those are kind of different because, you know, everybody has a different leverage on what okay. goes where. Basically, it's like making a sausage. You don't really want to know what goes on to these <laughs> yeah. lists. Yeah. It's a very long, long Two assignments for everyone. Mm -hmm. So go back in, if you can find it, watch Luther Vandross's concert from Wembley. Love mm -hmm. Luther. Amazing. Go and find Judy Garland's, the original unedited version of Judy Garland at Carnegie Hall. Mm -hmm. It is, you, talk, you want to talk about catalog, delivery, voice, talent, sing, dance, act, all of the above, not on the list. Mm -hmm. Is there going to be Come a on, test later? I don't think be a test. Test. I'm just yes. telling you, go and, go <laughs> and look at that. Or go look at, if you, you, people think about Michael Jackson, they think about the later years, right? Look at him when he was a child performing live mm -hmm. on stage and the quality uh, of his voice. He's too it, low on this list, too, Michael it's, Jackson. It's, um, it's yeah. unbelievable. So I agree with Whitney yeah. and, and Aretha, two of my mm -hmm. favorite singers, whatever, but wow. Control room, what are we going to play to break? 
Taylor for Taylor. Play some SZA. I'm glad she's on the list. Oh yeah. I'm glad she's on the list. I'm glad I use on the list. I'm glad they had a lot of um, a lot of people like uh, Toots Hibbert um, uh, um, of the Maytals, a great reggae artist. They had a lot of great international artists. It's good to see their presence on this list. Uh, what's her name? Who died? Uh, what's her name? I'm trying, guys. Billy Cruz? No, no. Uh, British singer. Oh, Amy Winehouse. Amy Winehouse. Oh yeah. Oh, oh. yeah. Love she her. She should have gone up a lot. She should have gone up a lot yeah. higher. Rosalia yeah. was way too low for me at two, like 200. Yeah. But. CJ, Moises, thank you both. I appreciate thank it. Good to see. Great thank discussion. You. Thank you so much. Thank you guys so much. Thank you both. Happy New Year. <laughs> Happy New Year. President Biden returning to a reshaped Washington on the eve of Republicans taking over the House. Plus, we're learning new details about the suspect who injured three New York City officers with a machete, why he says he did it. More CNN this morning to come after the break. I, for one, am excited for 2023. One party rule in Washington is ending and accountability is coming. Well, the question is, but will he lead those efforts? Good morning, everyone. Caitlin is off and on assignment. Poppy is here. Good to see you. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? Good. 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 New Year. Yeah. So, I think that was for you. You? Oh, yeah. Thanks. (laughs) Getting back in the swing of things. I know. We're a little rusty after the holidays. House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy scrambling to gain the votes he needs to be speaker, even after making major concessions this weekend. It still might not be enough. And you know what, Poppy? The suspect in the machete attack on three police officers near Times Square expressing support for the Taliban. Investigators discovering a handwritten diary what it says, plus this. Eight seconds. 19 and a half years for one of the organizers of the conspiracy to kidnap and kill me. That is a significant sentence. We have Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer's first reaction to the sentences handed to the men who plotted to kidnap her. Hear what she told our very own Caitlin Collins. All right, let's begin, though, this hour in Washington. House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy will be taking the race for speaker to the floor officially tomorrow in what could be the most dramatic House speaker election in a century. McCarthy has made a number of concessions to try to get the necessary number of votes to succeed Nancy Pelosi. But at last check, he was still coming up short. So will we see the first floor fight, as it's called, in exactly 100 years? Let's turn to our CNN senior data reporter, Harry Enton. What do you think? All right. So let's talk one of my favorite topics, math. What Kevin McCarthy needs to become speaker. So right now, the GOP's 2023 majority is 222 seats. Majority of House seats is 218. So the GOP's GOP votes McCarthy can lose is four. four. He can lose four. So let's take a look at his math problem, right? Okay. He can only afford to lose four Republicans. There are five hardline Republicans against him. There are another nine who are unsatisfied with his compromises. So right now, the total against him is 14 or more, and he can only only afford to lose four Republicans. So right now, that math isn't there. And, you know, we look essentially at what he has agreed to do so far. This is one of the things he's agreed to do. He's agreed to reduce the threshold for the motion to vacate the speakership. The current rule is a majority of the majority party over 110 votes in order to essentially the motion to vacate. 
One possible change that he's already agreed to, Poppy. Look at this. Yeah. As few as but, five majority But some parties. of the hardliner, Lauren Boebert, for example, wants it to be just one needed. I don't think our viewers all know what motion to vacate is. What is it? Yeah, essentially what it is is the idea that you can essentially get rid of the speaker, right? So it's basically the motion to get rid of the speaker, get this thing going on the floor. It's a parliamentary procedure. But essentially, this to me isn't necessarily important insofar as what it could mean for Kevin McCarthy in terms of getting him out. Because if you essentially get 218 folks, you can get him out regardless of whether they get the majority of the majority. But what it really speaks to is the fact that he's having such a difficult time securing those number of Republican votes in order to become the speaker uh, in the House of Representatives. Okay, what happened 100 years ago? Yeah, so, you know, essentially, <laughs> what I really, uh, what I will say is that essentially what we have essentially seen, is, I want to jump actually five years ago. I want to okay. jump five, or, excuse me, seven years ago. And I want to jump to, McCarthy has been here before, okay? Yeah. He has been at this the point. Paul Ryan. Right, he couldn't get to 218 yeah. votes to become speaker. And this time, his sort of math is much more difficult. He has a much more, much smaller majority now, 222 votes, than back then at 249. Mm -hmm. But of course, as you pointed out, the GOP has a much, had a much more popular alternative back then, Paul Ryan. There isn't one right now. And this kind of speaks to the problem, right? It's like, if it's not Kevin McCarthy... Then who is it? Then who the heck is it? And the real issue here is, you know, when we talk about speakers, right, and we talk about, okay, can they put together that majority? What we know is that how big is the potential first-time speaker's majority? Uh -huh. Look how low Kevin McCarthy's is at yeah. 222. That is the Lower. smallest majority since 1931 for a potential first-time speaker. So he has much smaller room for error. Yeah. You know, you spoke about Paul Ryan. 245, sure. that's way, 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 way more. It also doesn't have to be a member of the House. It I know that's crazy, but it doesn't. It doesn't. Have, so we'll see exactly what happens. But the fact is, Kim McCarthy still has a lot okay. of math problems. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. for the math help. Harry, Don. All right. Well, this morning, President Biden facing a new year with a new divided government. He is planning to kick things off with a message of bipartisanship as he's joined by Republicans to tout the massive $1.2 trillion infrastructure law that he signed in 2021. CNN's Arlette Signs live in St. Croix, U.S. Virgin Islands, where Biden is about to wrap up his vacation. Good morning. Oh my gosh, look at it. I mean, Arlette, it is so gorgeous there. <laughs> Good morning to you. Uh, an optimistic live shot, an optimistic assignment because Good it's so morning. beautiful there. But it, it is an optimistic message. But will Biden be able to navigate a GOP house? Yeah, you know, we've been very lucky to be spending the past week here in St. Croix in the Virgin Islands. And President Biden is preparing to head back to that new political reality in Washington, an era of divided government. But for his part, he wants to show that he is willing to work with Republicans and cross, uh, across the aisle to get things done in Washington. And that is why he's going to try to showcase this bipartisan push when he travels to Kentucky on Wednesday. He, there he will be joined by Republican Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, as well as Ohio. Ohio's Republican Governor Mike DeWine. They will be there to tout the bipartisan infrastructure law that was passed last year and how that funding will help a bridge that connects Kentucky and Ohio. It is those kinds of initiatives that the president is planning to tout in the coming weeks as he's trying to make this bipartisan push. But look, in Biden's ideal world, this is how government would work. Republicans and Democrats are cooperating to pass legislation. But he is also fully cognizant of the Republican resistance that lies ahead, specifically in the House as Republicans are set to take over control there tomorrow. 
is Biden playing up this whole bipartisanship thing? Is, is it for voters so, so as we inch closer to a potential announcement in 2024, you think? Yeah, you know, this bipartisan push is as, as much a practical one about getting things done in Washington as it is a political one. Biden and his advisors have long felt that talking about bipartisanship is something that will resonate with voters, particularly independent voters who might be frustrated with a lot of the division that they've been seeing in Washington. It was a hallmark of his 2020 campaign, and it is likely to be another hallmark as he's uh, potentially readying for another run. Advisors say that decision will be coming in the, in the next few months. Thank you, Arlette. Appreciate it. New this morning, we do have details uh, about the 19-year-old suspect in the New Year's Eve machete attack. This happened right near Times Square, the incident leaving three NYPD officers injured. Law enforcement tells CNN the suspect also carried a handwritten diary in which he wrote about his desire to join the Taliban in Afghanistan and his desire to die as a martyr. Our chief CNN chief law enforcement uh, and intelligence analyst, John Miller, is here. It's terrifying. It's, it's what, you know... They work so hard to protect and fortify Times Square for New Year's Eve, and this happens. What do you make of what we know so far? Is this potential motive? Well, I think it, based on the diary and based on the travels of Trevor yeah. Bickford, uh, it looks like he intended to go to Times Square to commit this act right. um, and that he intended to target police. Listen, do they, we know that the NYPD is the best at this, the best at terrorism and all these in, in attacks. How do you plan, though, for something like this? Someone just coming to swing a machete yeah. at, at your head, you know? Well, it's something that they've seen before. If you go back uh, just a few years to the Zale Thompson case, yeah. here's a guy walking down the street. There's four police officers standing there, and he attacks them with a hatchet. Mm-hmm. Um, this was another terrorist-inspired case. In this case, you have a young man who takes the train down from Maine. Um, He's on his way to Miami, stops in New York, checks into a hotel, um, and then shows up in Times Square with this machete. This is where the system works. You can't get into Times Square with a backpack. You can't get into Times Square with a machete. Uh, But that doesn't seem to be his intent. His intent seemed to be to attack police officers on the perimeter. the perimeter and the event and the police were the target. So now they will be looking into, right, John, um, was he a so-called lone wolf, which, you know, DHS has pointed out as a num- one of the key, number one threats, or was he acting as part of a broader group, right? Right. And for, for right now, based on all they know, based on interviews with uh, people in Maine, his family and so on, It appears he's acting alone. It also appears that this was a somewhat spontaneous decision Hmm. uh, because his his he came with all the luggage for the travels that he had planned to make, um, which didn't include, you know, this stop for an attack in New York City. But on December 30th, you know, NYPD sent out a bulletin saying ISIS and other groups are posting propaganda saying New Year's Eve, New Year's is a chance for lone offenders to attack um, targets in the West. And, you know, you, you don't know who's on the other end of all that propaganda. Yeah, I think it's a good reminder. Obviously, it's awful, but um, don't get too comfortable, right? yeah. especially when it comes to the, these uh, terrorist attacks or just attacks in general. Listen, I want to, can we talk about Idaho and the suspect in the killing of those four uh, University of Idaho college students? Plans, he plans to waive his extradition hearing uh, this week. His name is Brian uh, Kullberger. He is facing some very serious charges after being arrested in Pennsylvania. What do you know about um, 
Can you tell us anything about that, how officials tracked him down, what took so long? I mean, uh, this is, people have been waiting for, what do we do? Months. Months? months. Like almost two months? Yeah, so that's actually not unusual in the cadence of a major homicide case, which is you start with nothing, you go from the clues. What do the clues give you? They give you DNA at the scene. You have unknown contributors there. Okay, how do you figure out who the unknown contributors are? Then you get a lead on a white car. Then you start to search for who has a white car. You have an individual 15, min 15 minutes away at another school who gets in a white car and drives uh, 38 hours across the country with his father. And, you know, a tip comes in on a white car. Uh, you're able to make that DNA match. So sometimes these things are incredibly rich with a lot of leads that go nowhere. That's what was happening in Idaho. And then one lead starts to click in, the pieces fall into place over basically uh, just a number of days. Did you see this coming? Because as, as I was sort of watching, I was on, away on vacation, people were saying, I did not see that coming. This is what, not the arrest? The, yeah, the, the other. Oh, the, him. The, the arrest, him, how it all came about. Everyone thought it was possibly a random attack or something. Did you see that coming? Uh, I saw it coming. I said it was coming. Mm. You know, if you look at the reporting that we've all done here, uh, the team that's been on this, Veronica and Gene and everybody else, uh, you know, you talk about uh, there's going to be a break in the case and it's going to come from the unknown contributors of DNA, a tip, a lead. They're going to collide. They're going to come up with an answer. So that was the normal part. If you had asked me three weeks ago when we were having these discussions, would I guess that the uh, accused offender would be a master's degree student in criminal justice who studied serial killers, who was on his way to his PhD at another college where he was going to be the assistant professor in three other classes in the coming uh, semester about uh, killers and murders and motives? Uh, I would have said that's probably the Criminal Minds primetime TV version. Um, but life imitates art, art imitates life, and, um, you know, we're seeing elements of that in this terrible tragedy. Terrible for these families, these four young victims. Yeah. Just awful. John Miller, thank you very Thanks. much. We also have this this morning. There is some new video showing uh, you the catastrophic flooding in Northern California. Why don't you take a look at this? Thousands of people are still grappling with power outages and impassable roads after high winds and record-setting rainfall. Watch. I've worked for the Kasumnas Fire Department or previously the Elk Grove Fire Department for 21 years. This is the most significant flooding I've seen in this area in those 21 years. At least two deaths are reported in Sacramento while emergency crews have rescued multiple flood victims by helicopter. And look at this highway. This is Highway 101 in the Bay Area. It is submerged. And this was downtown San Francisco. Almost six inches of wow. rain fell there Saturday, making it the second wettest day on record for the area. We're going to have much, much more on this straight ahead. CNN is live on the ground in California, so make sure you stay with us. Poppy. Well, the airlines trying to get back to normal, especially Southwest, hoping to begin the new year with a new, better normal. Southwest still recovering from a disastrous week, long holiday travel meltdown that left tens of thousands of customers stranded at airports across the country. Let's go to Pete Muntean live at Reagan National Airport. A nightmare uh, has ended for many Southwest travelers. How are things looking just overall for the airline industry today? Well, the pressure is still on airlines, Poppy, especially considering the fact that today is supposed to be one of the biggest post-Christmas days of the holiday travel season. 
We have seen cancellations pretty small so far today. Just check FlightAware, about 270 cancellations nationwide, about half of them from Southwest. That is way down from what we saw during the highs of the meltdown last week, where Southwest was canceling two, 3,000 flights a day. Look at the board here at Reagan National Airport. All of the flights, or pretty much all of the flights here, by Southwest are on time, some delays even still. Now Southwest has a big chance to prove itself, especially considering that so many people are going to be flying today. Think about this. Travel experts say that they have a really big chance to refund people in a quick way. That is priority number one. But also, I want you to listen now to employees who say they know that Southwest needs to repair its reputation along with that back-end infrastructure that caused this meltdown in the first place. Listen. I think uh, initially it's going to cause some damage, of course, a lot of upset people not getting to their uh, Christmas plans, which is one of the most important days of the year. So totally, uh, completely understandable that they're going to be upset. Um, I do encourage them, though, to give us a shot, another shot. Um, I think we're going to end up fixing this uh, going forward. Um, you know, it, it does take a pretty, a very large weather event to make this happen. And the union, uh, the pilots union is uh, definitely going to be pressing the company very hard and making uh, sure things get fixed. One big priority by Southwest Airlines, getting all of these bags back to folks who lost them in the first place. This is the scene right now at Reagan National Airport. This is the pile that has gone down significantly of lost bags since the start of this meltdown. But we are still seeing big piles at airports across the country, in Oakland and El Paso. And a lot of passengers need to get refunded, too. So this story is not over just yet, Bobby. Thank you, right, Pete? Where's your refund? <laughs> Where is my refund? That's right. right. You know, I had a flight canceled between uh, San Francisco and San Diego over my uh, holiday break. I was off last week during most of this meltdown. I've submitted it online, southwest.com slash travel disruption. You put in your confirmation number, your Oof. name. You can also submit receipts. So I ended up okay. taking a one-way rental car, uh, and I put in about $300 expense for that. So we'll see if I get it back. Okay, keep us posted, friend. Oh, oh by the way, we completely missed you last week. Great <laughs> week to take off. <laughs> Mr. Transportation <laughs> <Sorry>. Correspondent. <laughs> okay. it's very smart. Did you see you traveled? We both traveled during, yeah. the, you know, over the last week or two. Did you see the luggage just the sort of sitting there? Orphaned just, luggage. Just, it was unbelievable. Hope everyone gets it back and gets a lot of money compensated. Right? Why not? Yeah. It went through hell. Yeah. Okay. Congressman-elect George Santos set to be sworn in to Congress tomorrow, despite the lies that he made about his basically entire background and his family, why there is still no response from House Republican leadership. Plus, Russian forces starting the new year escalating the assault on Ukraine, how Ukrainian officials say they are fighting back. That's straight ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. He's certainly going to have to consider resigning. He's got really two choices. One, he can try to politically uh, ride it out. We've seen that happen in Washington, D.C. Uh, or he can take the tougher choice, which is, I think, look, own, own every lie that he's made. Apologize to everyone and anyone uh, for as long as it takes. So that was the outgoing Republican Congressman Kevin Brady not holding back about what he thinks about Congressman-elect George Santos, how he should do after his uh, web of lies, what he should do after his web of lies were exposed. It's unbelievable. But, you know, it's still crickets from the House GOP leadership. One day before Santos is set to be sworn into office, scrutiny looming over this. There's a long list of lies. It is intensifying as well as state and federal prosecutors conduct separate investigations here. So joining us now, Maggie Haberman, Errol Lewis, um, who actually interviewed 
George, Santos. So as I was off, the only thing that I paid attention to was this was this story. And this is what everybody is talking about. Good morning to you guys. Happy New Year to you. So my one question is, whichever, how did this happen? How did this happen? We all we're all used to seeing public officials who shade the truth, lie and so forth and so on. This is a whole other you know, dimension. This is a different order of magnitude where he invented almost every single thing everything. about it. I mean, from his name to his, I mean, like almost everything, his work life, his education life, his mother's life, his grandparents' life, his immigrant story, on and on and on, all just completely invented. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's a little bit unusual to run into somebody like that. And we don't have a system, even the informal parts of our system, media vetting, opposition research, party mechanisms and so forth. We don't really have great mechanisms for trapping or catching something like this because it doesn't happen very often. At the same time, usually there is one mechanism that will catch yeah. something, right? There's the media, there's the, the rival opponents, um, there's the national Republicans, and then there's the local Republicans. And I don't think that's getting talked enough about, which is what exactly Republicans, you know, who saw this guy run two years ago, what were they aware of? What were they willing to tolerate in the hopes that they could see how far it would go in this climate? And what, the other thing we've never really seen is silence like this from leadership. And as you see Kevin McCarthy in the middle of his own battle to stay alive in leadership and to become the next speaker, he has been incredibly quiet about this, in part because he needs every vote. There is no reason to believe Santos is not going to get seated. I believe he is going to get seated, and then these investigations will continue. Constitutionally, and so, he has to. Right. Do. And so McCarthy, there, there's no mechanism in the House for getting rid of him. I think that's something yeah. that people haven't really understood. And it's going, you know, there can be a law enforcement effort to get rid of him, and I think we're going to see focuses on that. But I can't remember any time where there has been, you know, even a fraction of this and leadership has been so quiet in either party. Yeah. I mean, this is some of the quiet is just as you say. I mean, it's the Constitution says if you're 25 years yeah. old and you've been in the state, uh, you've been in the country as a citizen for seven years and you live in the state. That's, that's it. it. And, the, you know, the House but doesn't get also, to pick and choose who gets to. That's sit. right. But there's also just like what's right. And what's wrong? And when you speak up when something is just so wrong, I mean, he took American tragedies yeah. like 9-11, like the Pulse nightclub shooting yeah, yeah, yeah. where you were covering and, and used them to his benefit to gain sympathy and to get elected. And so I just wonder what you think it says about our culture of lying and accepting lies. Because in the old days, Poppy, but, but he would have just, don't you think reason I said, I can't, I'm not going to take all this. There would have been more yeah. shame. What do you I, think? I, I think, I, look, I, it's deep in American culture. You think about um, a play like The Music Man, right? I mean, the con man who comes into town and starts telling everybody what they want to hear. In this case, you know, he's got something for everybody, right? You like pets? Oh, I've got a pet charity. I've saved 3,000 animals, which he hasn't. Um, uh, you know, he says he's this and he's that. And, you know, at one point he says he has a, he's the, the son of a black father. You know, he's just like every piece of, of voting support that he can pick up, he's making up stories not, for this he's, community. He's not a Jew, he's Jewish. Yeah. Jew, Jew, Jewish, right. <laughs> Which is a Woody Jew Allen joke. Yeah. It, so right? we, should, we should get used to the idea that these, these creatures exist, these people who will come into town and tell everybody exactly what it is they want to hear, and then we have to figure out. And, and honestly, look, I, we have a system that the, the justice system is cranking up. We've got an attorney general. We've got federal prosecutors all looking into him. The, the, the Nassau County District Attorney saying if any laws were broken here, we're going to prosecute it. So it's cranking up a little bit. The media has certainly exposed a lot of the lies. People are coming forward. The truth is known. That's not a small thing or is becoming known. 
it's going to have to catch up with the political system. And, and you know, in, what, in about 24 months at the latest, That's right. the voters will have a chance to fix it. Maggie, this culture of lying, like, but is, this, is this something, obviously, something that Trump normalized, right? Mm-hmm. Because you just say what you want, lie about whatever, and just double, triple, quadruple down and, and you know, and just refuse to back down. It, look, it may work for a lot of people. It usually just worked for Trump. You think it's going to work for George Santos? Oh, he's going to be seated. And I think that then we're going to see what happens with these investigations. I think Errol is right to make the point that, you know, lying is not new in American culture, and it's certainly not new in politics, but not to this extent. We have never seen... I can't. We were talking about this in the green room. I can't think of a precedent for this. I have covered politicians who have lied, lied to me, lied to voters. You know, they've they've padded their resumes. We've never seen something like this. And, you know, I don't think that you would have seen silence like this as you have um, in the pre-Trump. I don't think you would have seen this level of sort of just ride it out and see what happens. But everything is about party tribalism now. And that's a lot of what we're seeing. Can you guys give us, I'm telling you, this is the this is the thing that everybody's talking about. Give us a little bit more time with the segment, because I want to ask you, you are a member. You cover politics in New York. Yes. I live out on Long Island and the leader out on Long Island did this, uh, covered this story. What, what happened to the local media that it didn't catch all of these lies or we're not interested enough, or I, I don't know. You tell well, you me. You know, I, 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 I've asked that very question. Yeah. Uh, there, there are. There's at least a, a paper, I believe, in Oyster Bay mm-hmm. that actually did yes. catch some of this and did publish some of it. Mm-hmm. But the way things work is that it's got to be sort of moved up the chain. You know, I mean, I'm based in New York City, Spectrum News. We're, a small piece of this district is in New York City, so we sort of paid Queens. some attention to it, Queens. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't our thing. We said, well, we'll let the newspapers and the, the folks out in Long Island, they'll have the main piece of it. And, you know, a local paper did, but it didn't get moved up to, say, I don't know, News 12 or whatever the local cable station is. And News the, 12. The, and then, the, you know, you have the, the, the big network affiliates who are covering the metro area, which is all of New York City, plus a little piece of Long Island. So it wasn't anybody in particular's right. job. And it was only really after the New York Times focused on it. It just happened to be after the election that you started to get the investigative resources and the, 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 the sort of the breadth and the reach. And so this is, you know, another chapter in the longstanding tragedy of the collapse or the decline of local news. It, it is that because the reality is that, you know, especially in this sort of attrited news environment, congressional races are, are rarely treated as top priorities unless they are sort of marquee races. And I think that this is an example of where it just basically fell through the cracks. I don't think it's a great excuse for any of us, but I do think that it is largely a death of local media story. What does Kevin McCarthy do? What do the Republicans or whoever do? With whoever. him? McCarthy continues focusing on Kevin McCarthy and trying to become the speaker. And I really think that's it. Whoever and think, is speaker has to say something. They right? need that one vote from George Santos and they don't need I, anything else. Correct. And then after that, right. you think they're done with him? After? I think, no, no, you know, no committees, sit in the corner. Yeah, you that's know, right. That's, that's, that's right. about and it. Try, and try to marginalize him. And then to your point, in two years, we're going to be doing this again. And I think the Democrats will be approaching this race differently. It's very hard to see George Santos surviving a re-election, assuming that he makes it that far. Um, but I think that basically they just try to leave this as a problem that they don't have to deal with. Dodge the reporters. Geesh. Two years of running away from reporter questions if he doesn't They've gotten pretty them. good at it. Is it possible for him to hide from reporters? Santos? Yeah. I mean, I think that's going to be the big test over the next couple of days. He right? won't talk to the New York Times, but he's talked to a whole lot of other people. True. And it's when partly how we yes. found when a lot of these When he's seated, he's going to be walking in yeah. the halls and they're going to be... I, I think it's going to be different when I think that when you get the 
the crush of, of yeah. Hill reporters who, yeah. are, who are, you know, on you at that moment. I think Manu, that's going to be different. Yeah. yeah, but how Manu do you, you how do you, how do you make, I mean, this, you know, my name is Trent right. Wilson and I'm, you know, Jewish from, I mean, how do you, you just make it up. It I went a, to Harvard a, and I graduated top of my class. It's a bit of a fan. What was it? Um, it's like the Love It segment on SNL. It's, yes, it's John like, Lovitz. Like, do you remember that? If you can, I mean, there and there is a degree yeah. to which part of the failure in catching this, I think, was that it was inco- it's inconceivable to me that some, a candidate like this existed. I think it was probably yeah. inconceivable to you. So I think we don't, you know, media outlets still do give candidates to some extent benefit of the doubt. Nobody was thinking, you know, what everything here must be not true. <laughs> so let's go, let's go poke at it. So thank you. Very much. Thanks, guys. Happy New Year, guys. Fascinating conversation. This one, we'll be watching this saga play out to see what happens. Very closely. Oh, yeah. Okay, up next, we're going to take you live to Kiev, Ukraine, where they they have been forced there, look at that, to dodge missile strikes Mm -hmm. while ringing in the new year. Mm -hmm. And speaking of, Caitlin's in Washington. Maybe Caitlin will get an interview with George Santos, hopefully, because she will chase him down, right? Hopefully. Uh, And she also sat down with Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer ahead of of her inauguration. What she is saying about her second term and the violent threats against her. And they weren't planning to ransom me. They weren't going to keep me. They were planning to assassinate me. And the plot has been covered as a kidnapping plot. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Happy New Year. Coming up for us, what we are learning about the suspect in the killing of those four Idaho college students and how investigators were able to track that suspect down. Also, we'll take it live this morning to California, where dangerous flooding has forced entire communities to evacuate. And we'll tell you about an embezzlement scheme inspired by a cult classic. A man is now facing serious charges for recreating the plot of office space. Wow. Well, Ukraine's capital of Kyiv is on high alert this morning after the military intercepted and shot down at least 20 aerial targets overnight. Officials there say the targets from Russia are targeting critical infrastructure in the region like power and water services. Meanwhile, Kyiv's mayor joined a group of soldiers in Bakhmut on New Year's Eve in an effort to bring them hope and tradition going into 2023. Turned out a scene has been Wiedemann live for us uh, in Kiev, Ukraine. Hello to you, Ben. The question is, a campaign of terror has not slowed down despite uh, Putin's claims of wanting to negotiate with Ukraine. What are you seeing there up from the ground? Well, as you said, those 20 uh, drones that were fired at Kiev overnight, some of them did damage critical infrastructure. And so the authorities here in Kiev are calling upon people to limit as much as possible their use of electricity. That, in addition to over the New Year's weekend, more than 45 of these Iranian-made Shahid-135 drones were fired. These are drones that explode upon impact. Uh, They're sometimes difficult to intercept uh, for the uh, air defenses. Now, over the weekend, uh, one person was killed uh, in the New Year's Eve barrage that took place, and another person has died as a result of the wounds that he received uh, during that barrage. So it does appear that the Russians, I mean, basically, four out of the last five days have seen these uh, barrages aimed at the Ukrainian capital. Uh, The air defenses are working, but uh, they are not able to take out all of these uh, incoming drones that uh, the Russians seem to have in fairly decent supply, although the the Ukrainian officials are saying that 
according to their intelligence, the Russians are running out of missiles and drones to fire, but uh, you wouldn't know it here in Kyiv. All right. Ben Wiedemann on the ground in Kyiv. Thank you very much, Ben. We appreciate that. And straight ahead, we're going to show you an interview with Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer before her inauguration. Caitlin sat down with her. What's at the top of her agenda as she starts her second term? Plus this. Did you, wait, Mom, Dad, did you, did you hear this? Michael B. Jordan dead at 35? Uh-uh, 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 35. Uh-uh. What? 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 Well, after pranking his mother, Angela Bassett's son is now apologizing after taking part in this viral and disturbing TikTok trend. We'll tell you what's going on ahead. that you have put your trust in me to continue leading our beautiful state. I will be a governor for all Michiganders, and I will work with anyone who wants to solve problems and get things done. That was Michigan's Democratic governor, Gretchen Whitmer, being sworn in yesterday for her second term, just two, just days really after those two men were sentenced on federal charges in the plot to kidnap and assassinate her. Caitlin Collins got to spend time with the governor at her home in Lansing, Michigan, on Inauguration Day at the governor's mansion. Here's her reporting. So they've only ever known the governor's mansion. They've only ever known this beautiful place, yeah. (laughs) Inauguration Day for Governor Gretchen Whitmer starts with kibble. How are you feeling today? I'm good. I'm excited. I'm excited. Starting a second term, we've got whole new legislature, a whole new environment here. I'm going to get some really good stuff done. So this is my sister Liz. It's 7.30 a.m. The governor's pumpkin oatmeal bake is on the kitchen counter, and she's surrounded by her family. Whitmer says she wasn't always confident this day would come. There was so much chaos politically and in the environment. Uh, I didn't know if I would, you know, get an opportunity to serve for four more years. I never imagined I'd win by almost 11 points and come in with a whole new legislature. Whitmer defeated her opponent decisively and with Democratic control of the state House and Senate for the first time in 40 years, is viewing her second term differently. Do you feel like battle tested? It's hard to, you know, rattle me now. I will say that, <laughs> you know, we've had challenge after challenge. Uh, but yeah, I, I do. And I've, I'm more comfortable um, in my own skin. Congratulations. Thank you. Today starts her new term in a new mission. While that still includes fixing the damn roads, Whitmer is also leading the public charge on protecting abortion rights, in part because of her own daughters. For Michigan to be a place where they will make their lives, they better be able to make their own decisions about their bodies and have full protections under the law. And that's why, you know, as a mom, so much of what I do is driven by my own situation. Having daughters, I think, is makes it sharper and, and more urgent than than if I didn't happen. Those daughters don't always love having the governor as mom. It's been a little weird, I'm not gonna lie, but everybody it's, knows her now. Yeah, yeah. You were talking about how everybody sees you on the street like on Tinder, I see pictures of people with my mother. <laughs> oh, 
wow. I've been that's weird. Yeah. That. It's really yeah. odd. Yeah. And do you, well, are you like, that's my mom? Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> no, no. She does not admit. As Whitmer's national profile has grown, so have the threats against her. Absolutely. I'd be lying if I told you it has, I'm unfazed by it. Whitmer was sworn in just days after two men who led the plot to kidnap and possibly kill her were sentenced to prison. 19 and a half years for one of the organizers of the conspiracy to kidnap and kill me, that is a significant sentence. I think it's important to understand I'm an ordinary person. I've got an extraordinary job. I have served in extraordinary times. But I'm a mom. You know, I'm a daughter. I'm a... I'm a an average person who is trying to serve my state. Whitmer has chafed at how the matter has been described as a kidnapping plot instead of an assassination attempt. And they weren't planning to ransom me. They weren't going to keep me. They were planning to assassinate me. And the plot has been covered as a kidnapping plot. There was one person who showed up on, you know, a Supreme Court justice's lawn and turned himself in and it was covered as an assassination attempt. The whole ordeal made Whitmer question remaining in public service, and she was shocked when her opponent, Tudor Dixon, used it as a punchline on the campaign trail. Gretchen Whitmer sure is good at taking business hostage and holding it for ransom. What went through your mind when she said that? Just how craven um, and how there are some people who care more about winning an election than um, the the health and safety of our democracy and our, our fellow Americans. As Whitmer takes her oath of office and begins her second term, it will also be her last due to term limits. I do think people could have some great takeaways from what we did and replicate it in other states. The best way that I can contribute to um, the National Democratic Party is to be able to be someone that they can point to and say, this is what happens when you elect Democrats. But the governor brushed off speculation that she'll seek a future White House bid. I'll be very honest with you, Caitlin, I have not spent a whole lot of time thinking about that, no. But you spent some time thinking about it. Well, because people ask me, <laughs> so briefly. So what's next in four years when she leaves the governor's mansion? I will stay engaged one way or another. I don't know if I'll ever run for anything again, but I will be engaged. But as Whitmer herself noted, she said that before. You know what? When I left the legislature um, eight years ago, I never thought I would run for another office again. I know enough about myself to know if there is something that needs to be get need to get done, and I there's a role I can play. I will want to play it. Do solemnly swear or affirm. Do solemnly swear or affirm. For now, the focus remains on the job she's just been sworn in to do, governor of the state of Michigan. I do not have plans to run for anything um, other than to spend the next four years serving this state as governor with a majority Democratic legislature for the first time in a long time and to get a lot of good stuff done here in Michigan. Two thoughts. Yeah. Great interview. Uh, what did you make? Pumpkin oat? Something I don't on know, the it was something counter. on the counter, but I, I, you know what I'm related what? to? The dogs. It seems like that's all we do, her, like, making, you know, I think, I don't know if that part was you 7 in the morning. You never see them in their own environment. It, I thought it was great. I thought uh, Caitlin did a good job of personalizing her, showing her as a professional, and also, as you said, just, you know, the sort of backstory of what her life then is. Then in there with the 
perfect follow-up, but you've spent some time thinking about running for president, <laughs> right? Like, I'm Caitlin Collins. You can't get that past me. It was great. Uh, Caitlin will be back here with us tomorrow. Uh, actually, she'll be in Washington yeah. with a lot of great first interviews day, for the first day. 118th Congress. Yeah, here Oof. we go. Here we go. Uh, also ahead on CNN this morning, our interview with Governor Whitmer's history-making pick for the Michigan Supreme Court, Justice Kyra Harris-Bolden. She is the first black Who woman. Who did that interview? I don't know. I don't know. To sit on the state's highest court. <laughs> In 2022, to have the first black woman on the Michigan Supreme Court, I don't say that with um, with glee. Right. You know, it's unacceptable. We're also going to take you live to Northern California. That's where historic flooding is leading to water rescues and evacuations. More CNN this morning to come after the break. song from the legendary Pointer Sisters, their 1982 hit, I'm So Excited. Lead singer Anita Pointer was one of the founding members of the Grammy Award-winning R&B group known for their huge 80s hits like Neutron Dance and Jump. The 74-year-old singer died New Year's Eve at her home in Los Angeles. She was surrounded, we have learned, by her family after a battle with cancer. The family released a statement saying, quote, heaven is a more loving, beautiful place with Anita there. Yeah, amazing. I've been, after I found out, I went through the internet looking at all of their um, performances on variety shows, like, you know, the Sonny and Cher show or the Cher show. It was just amazing to see them because they were so, so talented. Uh, Their interview with Joan Rivers on her talk show where she talked, they started out as gospel singers, singing in the church. Yeah. What a life. They were amazing, yeah. Amazing, amazing, amazing. So uh, we are uh, thinking about the pointers, the entire family. And we're also talking about this. There's outrage across the Internet over a viral TikTok trend that some say has gone too far. Kids pranking their parents by lying and telling them that celebrities have died. (gasps) Holy (laughs) Allison Janney dead at 63. No! No! Who? Oh, my God! God. George Clooney dead at 61. No! 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 Don't tell it to me like that! Y'all! Chris Jenner dead at 67. Well, so you see on the screen that there's Angela Bassett, the legendary, beautiful actress, even fell victim uh, over the weekend when her son told her that her Black Panther co-star Michael B. Jordan died. Did you, wait, mom, dad, did you, did you hear this? Michael B. Jordan dead at 35? Uh-oh, 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 35. uh-oh, 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 Ah, wow. Okay, so joining us now with more on this, CNN Entertainment reporter Chloe Milas. Good morning to you. Good morning. I know. I saw this. It's not funny. It's so weird and bad omen. Yes, it is. For Angela Bassett, it's particularly upsetting because we know her. Because of Chadwick Boseman passing away. So let me just break it down for you. So this 
trend on TikTok. As we know, a lot of TikTok trends go incredibly bad. This is really dividing people, like you both said, because it is such a terrible thing to joke about, you know, and, and celebrity deaths really can happen over the holidays, which is what makes it even more believable because we've lost some of the greatest, like Mike, uh, George Michael and others during the holiday season. And so it's these young kids who are trying to get these reactions from their parents. Um, and with Angela Bassett's son, Slater, who's 16 years old, his joke went obviously incredibly badly and obviously really struck a nerve for his mother, who, like we just said, lost Chadwick Boseman, her Black Panther co-star a few years ago to cancer. Now, her son, Slater, took to social media to post an apology. Here's a little bit of that. I apologize to Michael B. Jordan's entire family, his extended family, and him directly, as he is an idol of mine. And taking part in a trend like this is completely disrespectful. And I hope this can be a teaching lesson to anyone else who uses social media as a tool and a source of entertainment to, to, to truly understand that your actions can have consequences that extend beyond you. I want to point out that on TikTok, the hashtag celebrity death prank has almost 200 million views. But I also read on Newsweek this morning that it could be upwards of a billion views. Um, So this doesn't seem to be slowing down. And many are wondering if TikTok should step in, should put disclaimers on these videos Mm. and maybe, you know, tell kids that this is really not a good idea. He's 16. And it's a good lesson for kids to realize that what happens on social media is like has impact has and like bad karma and like yes. bad energy to put but good out for there. him for going out there yes. saying i was wrong i'm sorry yes jeremy renner what happened is he going to be okay so he is in critical uh, but stable condition he there, not many details at this moment but he was involved in a snow plowing accident uh, just you know just himself no other individuals involved we are tracking this uh, we've reached out to his team for comment um, but we know that he is in critical condition right now oh. and we'll keep you guys posted on that oh. praying for him for sure yeah. thank you chloe very thank much you. cnn this morning continues right now Good morning, everyone. Welcome to CNN This Morning. And by the way, Happy New Year. You were so great. Thank, thank you. I mean, I stayed up as late as I could. <laughs> you and your sparkles and the three dogs and your mom. You. And, and you brought family. it. It was a little messy, but New Year's Eve is a little messy. So it's all messy. it's all good. It was it's very human and beautiful. And you're sparkly this morning. I for, thought if there's any day, I can wear it. For New Year's. It's today. It's good you to know. see you. Good Happy see New you. Year to you. By the way, we're missing someone. Caitlin is off. She's on assignment. I shouldn't say. I keep saying she's off. She's on assignment. And so we're going to start with catching you up on the five big stories on CNN this morning. This morning, we're learning more about the suspect in the New Year's Eve machete attack near Times Square. Sources say that the 19-year-old had a diary where he wrote of his desire to join the Taliban in Afghanistan and die as a martyr. He is currently in custody in a New York City hospital where he is recovering from a gunshot wound. The three officers who were injured in the machete attack have all been treated and released. Also this morning, the suspect released... uh the suspect, I should say, charged with murdering four University of Idaho students will appear in a Pennsylvania court tomorrow. His name is Brian Koberger. He faces four counts of first-degree murder and a charge of burglary in Moscow, Idaho. He is planning to waive his extradition hearing. He's accused of killing four college students as they slept in their home in Idaho. We'll speak to one of the students who was in one of his classes, Koberger's classes. He'll join us in just a moment. 
Tens of thousands of mourners are paying their respects in Vatican City this morning as former Pope Benedict lies in state. Pope Benedict XVI passed away on New Year's Eve at the age of 95. His body is currently lying in state at St. Peter's Basilica. His funeral is set for Thursday. House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy could be facing the most dramatic election for speaker in exactly 100 years in a last-ditch effort to gain the support he needs. Ahead of tomorrow's vote, he has made some major concessions to some of the most uh, hardline demands on the right. Still, it's not clear if the numbers add up for him. Ousted Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro has left Brazil and is currently in Florida. There's new video showing the former far-right president in Orlando. His trip comes as his successor, Luis Lula da Silva, was sworn in to office. Bolsonaro's trip to the U.S. breaks with Brazil's tradition for outgoing leaders to be present at the transfer of power ceremony. But first, the suspect in the murder of four University of Idaho students will waive his extradition hearing at his court appearance that is set to happen this week. According to his attorney, Brian Koberger faces four counts of first-degree murder in the Moscow-Idaho killings. He's accused of stabbing those four college students in November at the rental home that they shared. Police arrested him in his home state of Pennsylvania. That's where we find our colleague Jean Kassara. She joins us now live outside the jail where he is currently being held. Good morning to you, Jean. Wow, so much happened on this over the weekend. We're hearing from suspect, the suspect's family and also the attorney, the public defender, right, that he's been appointed. What have you learned? That is correct. We are getting a word from his family now. They have a released a statement to CNN. We'd like to read that statement to you. It says, first and foremost, we care deeply for the four families who have lost their precious children. There are no words that can adequately express the sadness we feel, and we pray each day for them. We will continue to let the legal process unfold, and as a family, we will love and support our son and brother, we have fully cooperated with law enforcement agencies in an attempt to seek the truth and promote his presumption of innocence rather than judge unknown facts and make erroneous assumptions. We respect privacy in this matter as our family and the family's suffering loss can move forward through the legal process. And that arrest that happened on Friday in the early morning hours was at his family home. And the attorney tells me that his father actually answered the door. He was cooperative. Brian came to the door. He was arrested by the Pennsylvania State Police. The FBI was there also, however, and he was at that point taken into custody. The next legal hearing will be tomorrow. It will be the extradition hearing. His attorney, the chief public defender for Monroe County, which is northeastern Pennsylvania, says he plans on waiving that to get back to Idaho as soon as possible. Gene, we really appreciate your reporting on this. Thank you. Hopefully some answers soon for the families. So let's go now to the Idaho murder suspect, who was a teacher's assistant in a criminal law class at Washington State University during the fall semester. So joining me now, one of the students in that class, his name is Hayden Stenchfield, a junior studying criminal justice. Hayden, thank you for joining us this morning here on CNN This Morning. We know it's uh, early for you, but we appreciate you joining us. And uh, this must be obviously shocking for you. So th let's talk about Koberger. He was your teacher's assistant. What went through your mind? when you heard that he was arrested for this? Yeah, it was, it was pretty crazy. I mean, I was, you know, just like sleeping here on the couch in my parents' house and I woke up to all these tweets that were like, oh, they, you know, they got the guy. And of course this has been something that everyone in Pullman has been following, everyone in the whole Pullman Moscow area. And so 
you know, I look on my phone and I see the guy's name and I see the picture. And I'm thinking that looks a lot like my TA who's also named Brian, but that would be crazy. And so I went and I checked my email, you know, to see where, to see the emails I'd had with them and the name match and everything. And yeah, it was just like totally jarring, totally shocking to realize that this person that had been, you know, kind of grading my papers was, you know, allegedly this like horrible murderer. Yeah. So you just knew him as a teacher's assistant, no interaction with him beyond that, correct? Um, yeah, no, uh, entirely. All our interactions came in the form of the class and um, not even like, you know, office hours. Like it was all within the confines of a, of a lecture hall. What was he like as a teacher's assistant? Um, he was pretty strict uh, as far as grading goes. Um, when he came into class, he was very, uh, you know, not super mentally present. He would stand up at the front, look at the ground. Uh, he had a lot of like boilerplate responses he would give people rather than, you know, maybe something he had thought up on the spot. It seemed like he would be, you know, he, he'd come in knowing what he was going to say to like most interactions. And then when he would grade your papers, he would be grading you on what he ended up calling like a higher standard. But what it really felt like to us was he was grading us like he would have graded himself as a PhD student. Um, and so that was just kind of like, you know, we were all annoyed by him. And so I knew his name, you know, I knew like, oh, T.A. Bryan, like he's, he's kind of, he sucks at this. Like he's, he's grading us too harshly. And that was like an annoyance. But obviously beyond that, we just thought he was a little weird and kind of, you know, a bad grader. Hmm. Interesting that you say that a bit because you said you grading you as if you were a PhD student. Um, you say that he was harsher, harsher, greater um, than most people. And we have an example of a, a comment that he left on one of your assignments. So there it is. On the yeah. thing. So he actually only left me good comments, which is just kind of silly. Like I, the only ones I could send in were nice ones, but, but for most people, he was being pretty, pretty harsh in the comments. I just, for whatever reason, he was being pretty good to me. So did, uh, did people complain? Did anybody like confront him? And, and if so, what happened? Yeah, actually, um, we, we, we had, our professor was big on the idea that like, you know, if we're all going to be attorneys someday, then we have to know how to argue our case. And so, uh, he scheduled a day where everyone, you know, came in ready to argue, to get their grades up, you know, and he brought in Brian and he was like, all right, go at him. And he had Brian stand up and everyone was, you know, like a few people were on his side because they wanted to keep their high grades and not like have questions be cut out or whatever. But for the most part, it was like, you know, half of 150 person class, just asking him all these real critical questions and he would answer. And he'd actually, he, he tried pretty hard to defend himself, which was the kind of thing that our professor loved. He wanted the like courtroom environment. And so, um, so there was just a period of class where we were all sort of arguing about this. Not, I mean, it wasn't like yelling or anything, but it was certainly conflict, you know? Yeah. Uh, was there anything odd, like, especially a change or anything in the recent weeks or days? I mean, what was he like heading into the, you were going into the winter break, right? Yeah. Yeah. We just, uh, it would have been about a month before winter break when like the murders happened and we didn't obviously build our framework for this around that because we had no reason to connect him to that, you know, at the time, but definitely around then, um, he started grading everybody just a hundreds, not like, like, like you pretty much, if you turned something in, you were getting high marks and he stopped leaving notes. It was just, uh, you know, he seemed preoccupied is what I would have said at the time. And now, obviously, he seems like he was probably pretty preoccupied. But, um, but it was, yeah, it was much easier. You'd turn in whatever you wanted, pretty much. And he was just braiding them up and sending them back. Like, so, but Hayden, so uh, that was in, on the papers. Is anything in person that you noticed differently around that time? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, he probably that I saw, he was always um, a little bit spotty on whether or not he'd come to class because he had, you know, whatever PhD stuff over the top of it. But the couple times that he did come after um, or around that time period, I remember him, you know, he had like a little bit more facial hair, just like stubble, but definitely less like well kept than he was. And he was um, a little quieter. You know, he didn't, uh, he used to stand up at the start of class and like talk about some stuff sometimes. And this time he didn't really do that at all. Um, he was definitely, I think, like the the previous like mental preoccupation that we had been noticing where it was like, you know, he didn't really want to be there. That was at like an all time high. And he just, you know, didn't look like he was doing great. Hayden, thank you so much. We appreciate you joining us here on CNN. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, this morning, really strong storms causing life-threatening flooding in Northern California. More than 100,000 customers grappling with power outages. Some people forced to leave their homes. The rapidly rising water also shut down big highways and left drivers stranded. Our Camilla Bernal joins us live in Wilton, California. That's in Sacramento County. Uh, Good morning. How bad is it? Hey, Poppy, good morning. So a lot of people still in Sacramento County under an evacuation orders. Others being told to shelter in place, especially because a lot of the roads still look like this one here. So many rescues over the weekend. Officials here saying they had to use boats and helicopters to rescue people. Record-breaking rain across California, leaving at least two dead and many stranded. The water kept getting deeper and deeper. In Sacramento County, an estimated 40 people rescued from their cars, according to a local fire official. Here's a view from above. It's amazing how strong it is, how strong the flowing water is. Others were told to evacuate or shelter in place. I've been here about six years, and that's the deep, that's worse than it's ever been. The storm system causing significant flooding in urban areas and leaving creeks and rivers in Northern California overflowing. When you see the water moving this quick and rising like this, it's a little unsettling. On Saturday, 4.75 inches of rain fell in a 24-hour period in Oakland, the wettest day on record. Roads were so impacted that the National Weather Service said closures were too many to count. When I opened one of my gates, there was so much water, it was gushing and it knocked me over. Thousands were also left without power Saturday and Sunday. And while crews worked to restore power, the overall cleanup could take days. This is crazy. I've never seen it so deep here. And rainfall exceeded eight inches here in California. It was difficult. It was uh, a lot of headaches for a lot of people. But water is always welcome news here in California. We'll have to wait to see how this impacts drought conditions here in the state. That's a good point, Camilla. Thanks for the reporting. And new this morning, there comes a point where silence is betrayal. That from Prince Harry, who sat down with our very own Anderson Cooper for 60 Minutes, or an interview there. He says that he was the target of media leaks after having private conversations with members of the royal family. One of the criticisms that you've received is that, well, okay, fine, you want to move to California, you want to step back from the institutional role, why be so public? You say you tried to do this privately. And every single time I've tried to do it privately, there have been briefings and leakings and planting of stories against me and my wife. You know, the family motto is never complain, never explain. 
but it's just a motto. And it doesn't really hold. There's a lot of complaining and a lot of explaining. Endless. Private being done in through leaks. Through leaks. They will feed or have a conversation with the correspondent. And that correspondent will literally be spoon-fed information and write the story. And in the bottom of it, they will say that they've reached out to Buckingham Palace for comment. Mm. But the whole story is Buckingham Palace commenting. So when we're being told for the last six years, we can't put a statement out to protect you, but you do it for other members of the family, there becomes a point when silence is betrayal. Hmm. Go? No. Yes. No, no, no. I, I genuinely want to hear what you're going to say. Anderson's full interview will air on 60 Minutes this Sunday, yeah. I think. But thoughts? I, it's, it, listen, I think it's great that it has nothing to do with Anderson's interview. I just, I just, I don't know. I'm not surprised that the royal family... I'm surprised that Harry is surprised, having been a member of the royal family. But don't you think you hope for the... Oh, hope absolutely. your family will do the right thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, their story, his story and his wife's story, it's theirs uh, to tell... But being a member of the royal family, going through what he went through with his mother, his dad obviously being the king now, his, mom, his grandmother, I'm just surprised that he's surprised at the inner workings of what they call the firm that right. it is. You know, maybe, maybe the story is that he's not so surprised that he's just letting us in on it. So maybe I'm missing something here. I yeah, don't know. we'll see. So we have to watch yeah. on Sunday we'll night. Watch. watch Anderson's interview, 60 Minutes. Ahead, the dire warning from outgoing Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger if former President Trump uh, is not charged by DOJ for his role in the insurrection. We'll talk about it all with Michael Smirconish. Michael Smirconish, there he is, standing by in Pennsylvania. And they made it. The family we met last week who <laughs> got caught up in the Southwest Airlines meltdown, drove thousands of miles across the country. Woo! Made it in time for the NHL Winter Classic. Well, you guys met them last week. You're going to love this time. family. We're going to speak to They're them amazing. before the big game. They're awesome. They're awesome. Obviously, look what they do. They're did. awesome. You're going to love them. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Okay, so outgoing Republican congressman and a member of the January 6th committee, Adam Kinzinger, is making a dire prediction when it comes to Donald Trump and what's on the line if he is not charged for his role in the attack on the Capitol. Here's what Kinzinger told our Dana Bash on CNN's State of the Union. If this is not a crime, I don't know what is. If if a president can incite an insurrection and not be held accountable, then really there's no limit to what a president can do or can't do. I think the Justice Department will do the right thing. I think he will be charged, and I frankly think he should be. If he is not guilty of a crime, then I, I frankly fear for the future of this country. Mm, so joining us now to discuss CNN political commentator and host of CNN's Smirkanish. The iconic Michael Smirkanish. Michael, good morning to you. I've got to ask you, what do you think of, of Adam Kinzinger's comments? Good morning and Happy New Year. I don't know that Congressman Kinzinger is going to get what he's looking for if he says he's fearful for the nation unless there's an indictment relative to January 6th. I think it's much more likely that there'll be an indictment relative to those Mar-a-Lago documents because that's so much more a straightforward case. And in fact, I think that A.G. Merrick Garland may have backed himself into a corner by appointing a special counsel in Jack Smith and then charged with the responsibility of determining was the law broken and can you prove it? And I think it's a pretty straightforward case 
relative to the documents, but it's much more hazy, a much more difficult case relative to January 6th. And Don, if in fact there's, there's an indictment only for the documents, I think some people may be left saying, wait a minute, is that all there is? After all the time and all the expense and all the investigation, it's only those documents at Mar-a-Lago? Soon we shall find out. 2023 is going to be a very interesting year. You say that's what you fear. Whereas Adam Kinzinger is talking about, I fear for the country if Trump isn't indicted because of his actions on January 6th and leading up to it. You're fearful of, you know, what if he's only charged with the docs and Mar-a-Lago? Right. Yeah. And, and Poppy, I get where Kinzinger is coming from, because from his perspective, having played the role that he played on the January 6th panel or commission to look at the evidence and to say, wait a minute, this is what he caused. He was essentially the arsonist, the president who let the fire burn and he's not going to get held accountable for that. I completely understand uh, his concerns, but it's still not an ironclad slam dunk case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, what, hey, Michael, what happens to this committee? I think I know the answer to this after, you know, tomorrow. Tomorrow. Gone. Yeah. What committee? I mean, I, I think, <laughs> exactly. they, look, they fulfilled their purpose. They always knew. They always knew that the, the time on the clock was was running out as that ball was dropping. Uh, they're at a close. It's over now. And, and Kevin McCarthy, and I know we're going to get to that, should he be the House Speaker and others can't wait to just shut down that whole process. Well, let's get to that, shall we? Yeah, because he's in a predicament. What? Yeah. So Harry went through the numbers with us earlier in the program. He's, you know, he, he's down by 14. There's 14 votes he needs that he doesn't have as of this morning. He can only afford to lose four. Four, yeah. Let's say he gets there. Then what? What kind of leader will he be? And how will this, do you think that this will uh, cripple his ability to lead in some way, that it was so hard to get there? If he even gets it. Well, I think that it will. And, you know, one of the things that we learned from yesterday's telephone conversation were the concessions that he made in an effort to win himself that position by making it much easier for his leadership to be challenged. I think now it'll just take a handful of votes where they could throw him out if he is the House Speaker. So he'll go in already in a very diminished role. The, the only thing I feel confident in saying about tomorrow is that he's not going to get there on the first ballot because of the numbers that Harry Enten explained earlier in the program, the fact that he can lose four and at least five are already lined up against him, maybe as many as 14, as you say, Poppy. The, the other thought that I have is when you look at the five who are the, the never Kevin McCarthy's, you know, the Matt Gateses, I can't imagine they will have a change of heart between now and tomorrow. Mm. And therefore, that's what causes me to say he's not going to get there on the on the first ballot. And it could go on for a while. And I don't think anybody knows how it ends. But you can't beat somebody with nobody. There's got to be the emergence of someone else if it's not going to be Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, and who and who could that be? Michael, I had so much I wanted to ask you because, you know, I do not only watch your show. Well, go. He's right there. I I know. But I was just I know they're going to say what. You know, Don, come on, let's, you know, we got to do whatever. Okay, so listen, so who is that? That's what I want to ask you. Number two, you had a pollster on who I found amazing what he, when he talked about his, um, his, um, the polls that he did, focus groups that he did uh, regarding um, Donald Trump. And there was another thing that I can't remember that I wanted to talk to you about. So who is it? And why do you think Donald Trump has lost so much of his luster when it comes to support? 
Do I not get to weigh in on Rolling Stone and Whitney Houston? I mean, go. that's no. oh, I'm Santos was the other thing. I can talk about it's... Donald Trump. Well, all oh. that, go, go. It's a lightning round, Wait, you go. guys, can you just see the control room, like, throwing their papers in the air? Like, where'd the show go? Go, Michael. <laughs> Listen, I mean, uh, Trump appears so vastly diminished entering 2023 in yeah. comparison to the way that he entered 2022. But, Don, how many times, I'll say I, have yeah. I counted this guy out? You know, the escalator, the rapists, the grab him by the you-know-what, uh. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So going to be an unbelievable year. That's all I can say is, like, give me a crystal ball because I need it. Okay, so is there – who other than Kevin McCarthy? Just lightning quickly, please. Oh, you want, you, uh, you want, you want me to give you the outsider? I'll give you a name. Steve yeah. Scalise. Yeah. Okay, all right, yeah. interesting. If I had to say, like, out of a – you know, out of a cloud of dirt, maybe – I don't mean dirt in a literal sense, but when the dust settles, how's that? Who could be the individual yeah. left standing? Him. Okay. There was that really interesting New York Times op-ed over the weekend saying take someone from the outside like John Kasich or Fred Upton, who's retiring. But they told me I can ask him about Rolling Stone. Yeah. So what? So you want to weigh on Rolling Stone. You said Whitney Houston in particular, but would go, go. what do you want to say, brother? Well, I loved your I loved your Luther reference earlier in the program because I'm a Luther guy, whether whether Luther was heavy, whether he was thin, because you remember there were there were many different shades of Luther. But I always loved Luther Vandross. So it's so funny to hear you channeling him earlier because I'm, I'm always game for that. Oh, yeah. My God. He Luther. <laughs> a house is not a home. A chair you know what I'm saying? Is still a chair, <laughs> even when there's no one sitting there. I was you make my morning. Don't go away again. Who is going to sing to me? I know. <laughs> and, and to Michael Smirkanish. Michael, you're always the best. I love listening to you and see watching you, you. Thank you. Happy Thanks, New Year Michael. to you. Thank I you. Appreciate it. Thanks. I hope to see you soon. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm really looking forward to sharing this story with you and with all our viewers next because she is the great-granddaughter of a lynching victim. Ahead, I sit down with now Justice Kyra Harris-Bolden, who just made history, the first black woman ever to sit on Michigan's Supreme Court. And just been so surreal uh, to... Um, be appointed to the highest court in the state of Michigan and be responsible for some really important decisions. What do you think makes you tear up? Oh, um, because this means so much to so many people. Welcome back, everyone, to CNN This Morning. Here's what's coming up. History made in Michigan. We're going to hear from the state's first black female Supreme Court justice in moments. And nearly 3,000 miles, and one week later, the family who drove from Phoenix to Boston for the NHL Winter Classic, they made it. They're going to join us live straight ahead. And just in, we're learning the suspect in the machete attack on NYPD officers in Times Square was interviewed by the FBI last month and had been on a terror watch list. That is according to our very own John Miller. More on that straight ahead. Well, now to a landmark moment at the Michigan Supreme Court. A black female justice has finally been sworn on to the state's highest court for the first time in its 185-year history. And that I will faithfully discharge the duties of the Office of Supreme Court Justice, of the Office of Supreme Court Justice, according to the best of my ability, according to the best of my ability. That is Justice Kyra Harris-Bolden. Her appointment comes at a very significant time for Michigan Supreme Court. Just last year, the court 
had a number of key decisions. They ordered an abortion rights initiative to appear on the November ballot. They banned discrimination against LGBTQ people and ruled that one-person grand juries cannot issue indictments against state officials. That's a big deal, and it led to charges being dismissed against the former governor in connection with the Flint water crisis. So this term, the court also has a lot on its plate. And Justice Bolden's appointment is not only historic. Wait until you hear the story of her journey and her family's legacy of injustice in the hands of the legal system. One day this little girl came to me and said, Miss Kyra, Miss Kyra, can girls go to college? Wow. And I looked at her and I said, yes, I'm a girl, I'm in college. And she turns to the little girl next to her and says, see, I told you. Little girls saw themselves in Kyra Harris Bolden. This has been a long journey for all of us. Today, for the first time, they can look up and see what else they could be. Kyra will be the first black woman ever to serve on the Michigan Supreme Court. Kyra. And with that, history was made as Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer appointed Bolden to the state's highest court. 185 years we've never had an African-American woman on the state's highest court. It's about damn time. It's just been an honor um, and just been so surreal uh, to um, be appointed to the highest court in the state of Michigan and be responsible for some really important decisions. What do you think makes you tear up? Oh, um, because this means so much to so many people. Justice Bolden's journey to this court, though, began nearly a century ago with a tragedy. Jesse Lee Bond, my great-grandfather, was lynched in Tennessee in 1939 after asking a store owner for a receipt. And he was beaten and castrated and thrown into the local river, um, and the coroner deemed it an accidental drowning. And as a result, his murderers walked free. That injustice drove Bolden to law school. Once I realized that that was something that happened in my own family. Less than uh, 100 years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. I just felt the, the need to be a part of the justice system and to go to law school and find my way in, in that. Is your great-grandfather's lynching the reason you believe you became a lawyer? It was definitely a large part of it. She would go on to serve two terms in the state legislature and then take a leap, a chance at making history. We need to make sure that we have justices on our Michigan Supreme Court that believe in equal justice under the law. She didn't win that race, but when a seat on the court opened up this summer, she was the governor's first choice. Thank you, thank you, and thank you very much. Her daughter Emerson, not yet five months old, too young to know the history her mother has made. Emerson, in just a few generations, our family has gone from lynching to law school, from injustice to a capital J justice. From uh, injustice to capital J justice is really just it's, just, it's amazing. It's amazing that we can make this type of progress for our family. What do you say to people who look at the state of racism in America today and don't see it as, as enough progress? Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's not. <laughs> it's not. It's not enough. It's absolutely unacceptable that in 2022, we are just now having the first black woman on the Michigan Supreme Court. There has never been a black woman that's been a governor. 
in, in the United States history, right? It's not acceptable, but we still have to work hard and we still have to try to break down these barriers. And 2022, it took till now to get the first black woman on the U.S. Supreme yes. Court. Yes, yes. You know, yes. when you think about Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, just a few months before you. Yes, yes. What you think? Yeah, I, I think it's one of those moments where you know what's possible, right? Um, you know, the same way that people have said that they look at me, the same way I look at her. Really? It, I mean, she she's amazing, but she is a representation yeah. of what is possible. Justice Bolden will be unique on this court as the only justice who was previously a state lawmaker. So that also, though, opens the door to other critics mm -hmm. who say, well, you're a Democrat, mm -hmm. you're partisan, you know, you served in the legislature, you ran as a Democrat. How do you shed that? All judges and justices have personal points of view, you know, so I don't think I'm different in that. My job as a justice is to interpret the laws. We have the opportunity to protect justice for generations to come. Did you know that? In a fitting full circle, she will fill the seat of Chief Justice Bridget McCormick, whose campaign was the first she worked on a decade ago. The state is getting a smart, savvy, and hardworking public servant as its newest justice. I know the weight of this job. I know what it means. It's always been my goal to pull people with me. You know, Vice President Kamala said, maybe the first but not the last, yeah. right? And that's just kind of the mantra that, that I live by. What, a, what an honor to sit with her. And you know, I have to mention Alpha Kappa Alpha. Alpha Kappa Alpha, Alpha, Alpha. <laughs> we talk so much about the barriers that she's breaking for AKA along with, you know, following the likes of Vice President Kamala Harris, Toni Morrison, and so many more. Yeah, and look, that part is important because when you think about the um, black sororities, the impact that they have on elections around the country, uh, and not only just for women, like they get people, they get out the vote. Uh, in Louisiana, the last uh, gubernatorial election, the black sororities mm -hmm. really helped in a red state mm -hmm pushed and helped mm -hmm. to elect a Democratic governor there. But she is... A force. 34 only. Amazing. I want to say one thing. Um, she has a five-month-old baby, so yeah. she ran this campaign pregnant, crisscrossing the state. Yeah. And uh, as someone who's had babies, I, just doing any job, let alone that job, is difficult. Her husband took two months paternity leave and was an equal caregiver at home so that she could do that. We talk a lot about what it takes to lift people up. Yeah. Big part of this for her, she said as well, having that equal partner. I'm not so surprised that she was pregnant. What did they, what did they say about um, Ginger Rogers? She had to do everything that Fred Astaire did, but she backwards was... and in heels. <laughs> so women there you go. amazingly can do those things. Yeah. Guys are, you know, we're not, we're not there yet. Our thanks to her is really a delight <laughs> to get to spend some time yeah. with her. Okay, so this morning's number is 306. Why? Harry what? Anton is here to explain. Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> you heard about
about the meltdown last week. Perhaps you were part of it. The meltdown by Southwest Airlines, leaving passengers angry and stranded. But what is the public perception of the entire industry, the entire airline industry these days? CNN's senior data reporter, Mr. Harry Inton, uh, joins us with the number this morning. When you said what that number was before, yes. I thought you were talking about the weight I gained on vacation, but it's not about <laughs> you look me. great. You look go fantastic. On. No, go on. 306? 306. This morning's number is 306 because that airline passenger, airline passenger complaints versus 2019. January, just through September, so this doesn't include the most recent data, up 306%. And if you go back to 1998, it's up 547% since then. My goodness gracious. And, you know, cancellations has one thing to do with it, right? 2022 airline cancellations, again, only through September. So this number is likely going to climb. Is up 28% from 2019. It is the worst cancellation rate in at least a decade. At least a decade. You know what's funny, Don? Fact of the matter That's is, is funny, that people Harry. used to really like the airline industry. <laughs> the favorable and positive views of the airline industry was 67% back in 1969. That's when people I used mean, to actually wear clothes on yes. airplanes. They and gave dress you up. like china and they, meals they and did, champagne. Wait, they don't do that anymore. They do not do Sorry. that. Oh, that's only in first class. They do, they don't do that anymore. And you know, if you look, how are airlines cutting costs? A few of a number of ways. The size of the seats have dropped. Yeah. The legroom is dropping. And many is like airplane food have all but disappeared. But how do they keep you? How do they keep you basically going to taking those planes? Because look at the price of the airline if you, for a round trip ticket. Oh, wow. Now just there 367. It's been dropping. So they get you in with those cheap prices and then basically take away all the amenities. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Thank you, Harry. Thank 306. you. 306. Speaking of airlines, after their Southwest flight was canceled on Christmas Day, one Phoenix family decided to drive nearly 3,000 miles wow. to make their son's Christmas wish come true. Wait until you meet them again. You met them last week on CNN This Morning. The Marr family is with us next. Very excited about this. An update now on a story we brought you last week. You may remember the Marr family whose Southwest flight was canceled on Christmas Day. Well, they decided to rent a truck and drive 3,000 miles nearly from Phoenix to Boston to fulfill their eldest son's single holiday wish to go to the NHL Winter Classic in Boston. When we last spoke with them, they were starting on the last leg of their journey. When we made the decision in Terminal 4 in Sky Harbor, on Sunday to turn this into a drive. And I remember my husband saying, guys, this is a really big commitment. Is everybody up for this? And I, I think probably secretly we were dreading it a little bit, but um, we actually have laughed a lot and had lots of smiles. And they made it and they're here joining us live from Boston, from Fenway, Tim Kelly, Bowen, Sullivan, Sailor, and Ireland, congrats. How is it guys? <laughs> we made it. <laughs> it's amazing. Just like yeah, we made it. Amazing experience. Yeah. Are you warm? I mean, you're, it's <laughs> no. just cold. Well, at least I wear jackets or not stuck in a car. Overall, I'm in. Are you warm? I, I am freezing. <laughs> I am. They, they didn't give me a jacket. Our, our Phoenix blood, our thin Phoenix, our New England friends from childhood are just nodding at us in disbelief that we're bundled up like this, but we're freezing. <laughs> okay, so Bowen, this was your dream, right? This was your, um, no, who's, who's, who's? That's right. Yes. Okay, so you are the reason your family took this epic trip, but you're also the reason 
that some amazing things have been happening to your family. What's it been like? It's been like surreal. I, I still can't believe some of the things we've done. I'm still like inhaling and digesting everything we've done. I mean, it's like the NHL just kept like one-upping themselves. They're like, we want to give you this. And we're like, oh my gosh, thank you. And then they're like, we want to give you this. We're like, oh my gosh, thank you. Oh like, no, please, you're too kind. It's, it's just great. He said yesterday at the end of the day, we were finishing up dinner and he said, my face hurts from smiling so much today. <laughs> what did they my give you? My cute little dimples. What did they give you? Oh, uh, well, who did you dine with last night? Well, we went to Ray Bork's restaurant and he came around the corner and like, it was like that like, aha moment. Like we just made eye contact and I was like, oh my gosh. And then he came over and he gave me a signed jersey. And I just, I was smiling for probably like six minutes straight. I mean, my cheekbones were so strained. It was, yeah. And yeah, and during the day crazy. we had a tour of Fenway, which was incredible. I mean, for us growing up here, uh, we moved to Arizona about 20 years ago, but growing up here, I mean, it was iconic walking around and seeing the back hallways and that sort of thing. Then we came back for um, the Bruins practice and Bowen and Sully got to stand where the players were coming in and fist bump with all of them and just being so up close and and being able to have that sort of vantage point of them practicing these these athletes that we just think are incredible and, and cheer on from our TV screens at home. It's just been incredible. I mean, we are we're Irish and we're not speechless very often and we've been pretty speechless. Yeah. OK, so, well, speaking of Stanley Cup, right, and Ray Bork, the NHL wanted to surprise you and give you a chance to be with the Stanley Cup too, right? Huh? Oh my God. So look, oh. look to your right or your look left at, or something. Oh, oh, what? Oh my gosh. Sully, touch it. Sullivan last night was asking Rayborn as if he was our neighbor, chatting oh. with him like he was a regular old guy while we were all gobsmacked. And he said to Rayborn, is the Stanley Cup very and heavy? And Ray said, yes, we kept wanting me to lift it over my head. My arms are very tired. Who's a little guy? What's a little guy closest to the cup? Look at his face. Oh my gosh. I need, I need to So this is Sullivan. We call him Sully. He's named after Sullivan Square here in Boston. <laughs> he he draws pictures of the Stanley Cup all the time at home. And this is incredible. Oh it's, my gosh. It's, it's awesome. Unreal. Wow. Thank you so much. <laughs> I, I want to touch it. I, wanna... I don't know if you can, but I'm yeah. yeah. You can okay. touch it. And we know this guy too. This is the, the cup and this the cup and this the man handler. of Mary. This is the handler. The we know handler. him. We know this guy from years and years. All right. Oh this is beautiful. All right, guys, as if today, as if this isn't enough. What'd you say, Sully? He's not Mike. Okay, but... okay. Say that part again, sorry. Okay, so listen, it, 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 this, we've got another surprise for you. The NHL is gifting your family with tickets to the NHL Winter Classic in 2024. So you're going to make this trip again, guys. Oh, my God. Uh, Stop it! <laughs> yeah, this is another road trip. Another road trip next year. This is what happens oh when you appear on CNN this morning, people. <laughs> Careful with your This is incredible. It's happy hockey family. Right. Incredible. Right. Thank you so much. Yeah. Oh my gosh. We're oh my gosh. so happy for you guys. Have the best time today. <laughs> and go inside and warm up. Okay. Congratulations. It's hard happy to think New Year's yesterday can be top, but. Thank, happy you. New happy New Year. Year. Thank you so much. Wow. Thank Bye, you. Guys.
What Tim, a great family. Bowen, Sullivan, Sailor, Ireland. We're very happy for you. Okay, so the Boston Bruins are going to face the Pittsburgh Penguins in the 2023 Discover NHL Winter Classic at Fenway Park. TNT's coverage of the game is going to begin at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Can we just end every show? And you get one. And you get one. And you, and you get, get one. one. You get one. And you get a car. And you we get a car. will oh, that's another see you tomorrow, show. maybe with a car giveaway. Okay. That's someone else. Yeah. That would be great. You need it with the airlines. What's happening with the airlines? <laughs> Bye, everybody. Now. See you tomorrow. Happy New year that is it for this episode of cnn this morning you can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com audio or in your favorite podcast app thanks for listening when you work you work next level and when you play you play next level and when it's time to sleep sleep number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness providing you with high quality sleep every night sleep next level J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.